So she plugged an IV. Yes. How much? A liter. Five percent glucose solution won't kill anybody. He wasn't dehydrated, was he? Did he have any other ancillary conditions? Didn't anybody bother to go in and check on him during the night, even under the impression that he was merely a patient? Was he hyperasmolar? Did he, did he have a bad heart? He must have had some sort of thrombosis. And you and I had better have a little chat, Mrs. Christie, about your excessive use of float nurses. I've got nearly a thousand nurses in this And every hospital. time one of them has her period, she disappears for three days. My doctors complain regularly they can't find the same nurse on the same floor two days in a row. Now, what in hell am I going to tell this boy Schaefer's parents? That a substitute nurse assassinated him because she couldn't tell the doctors from the patients on the floor? My God! The incompetence here is absolutely radiant. I mean, two separate nurses walk into a room and stick needles in a man, and one of those is a number 18 gel coat, tourniquet the poor son of a bitch, anchor the poor son of a bitch's arm with adhesive tape, and it's the wrong poor son of a bitch. My God, I mean, where do you train your nurses, Mrs. Christie? Dachau! How are you, Jay Blake? Oh, I'm all right. A lot of uh, people don't realize that we have broken the quarantine rules to be here together for a sleepover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <coughs> but well, we, shouldn't are... make, we shouldn't make jokes about that. Well, we have placed our sleeping bags six feet apart. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very far apart. We're actually, our feet are touching and we're going the opposite way. So we figure <laughs> that's six feet of a distance. <laughs> So we and, have our, and we the, have, we've somehow managed to interlock our toes together. Yeah, and we're holding on, and then the wires are taunt, our record wires. So if we move, we can unplug everything. We're holding and nothing feet. will save. It's very romantic. Yeah, exactly. We're holding feet. Exactly. Two two uh heterosexual males monogamous holding feet. Um so welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, I th- I guess we should give a shout out to everybody. You know, hope everyone's holding it down and staying safe and being okay with everything going on. And our hearts go out to everybody who's affected by this. If uh, you know anybody who's sick or who's passed away or, geez, if you're not in work right now or you're having some struggles, uh, you know, we just want to, you know, give, a, give you our sympathies and hope everything's okay. And we're trying to do our part by continuing the show. Uh so we figured, uh, you know, we were delayed a little bit putting this one out, but, you know, we figured because of the unusual circumstances, everything would be okay. We It'd couldn't be understandable. We couldn't get our parents to uh, agree on a yeah. sleepover night. Yeah, they're like, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> you want to do what? You Let want Blake to come here. over here? <laughs> you still want to do this? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're putting your mother and me at a lot of risk. <laughs> Just yes. to have this thing, we've locked the parents upstairs. <laughs> exactly, and we've uh, and then we lysoled everything as we backed away, you know. We and then we had masks the whole time. We're actually wearing handkerchiefs over our faces. You know, there's a lot of uh, what we announced on uh, social media that we are going to be delayed. A lot of people started suggesting movies, and I think for some reason there is this. Um, tendency 
tendency to want to start watching, you know, like virus movies, but we went the other direction with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really weird. That, that, you know, a lot of those those are evidently become wildly popular. I remember when I worked at a video store at nine eleven. I think I might have said this before that we couldn't keep the towering inferno or the siege on the shelves. Those two movies. Um, so um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And uh, yeah, instead of doing like Outbreak or um, you know the Andromeda Strain or Rage, yeah, uh, the George C. Scott movie, we the, we figured we'd go the opposite way. Yeah, or even Twelve Monkeys, yeah. I guess would have. Twelve Monkeys would have worked. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Just name there's movies that movie not from a couple years to... ago. <laughs> exactly. The, the <laughs> Contagion movies. Uh, the Stand. We were going to do this epic The Stand. And but, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But all these movies we decided not to do today. No. We start. We decided to go the other way and do a little um, classical supernatural horror uh, for two, 2020. Yeah. Well, you know, it's... Uh, it's... Uh, the movie we're doing tonight is... Celebrating a 40th anniversary. Good call. And Good call. I don't know. For me, it was always a movie that I, I kind of knew that we would get to at some point because we both have an affinity for it. Did we first watch it together? I feel like we did. I know we did watch it together, but I want to say that I actually saw it first in my youth. Maybe my okay. parents okay. rented it. Or something, but like, you know, when you watch, sometimes when you watch a movie when you're really young or even into your tweens, you know, you, you don't fully uh, remember it all. So when we watched it yeah. again, it was like rediscovering it for me. I feel like the first time I had had memories uh, very young of this movie, and it was only like two shots. I remember, well, uh, I can get into that in a minute, but I had, a, I had, a, two shots of this movie, which I never really knew what it was. And then I think I put it together when I used to see the box on the shelves because the box is freaky, the VHS box. And then I feel like it was actually a sleepover during our collegiate years that um, maybe up in uh, Connecticut that we watched this. We rented it, the DVD or something, and then that's the first time I watched it proper because yeah. we wanted to binge some George to the Sea. <laughs> so, um, and uh, that was the first time I remember watching it and having, a, you know, a, the first viewing, quote unquote, was with you uh, going on 20 years ago because uh, we're in our 80s now. <laughs> and in case any, everybody's, if anybody's somehow managed to download the show or stream push play without knowing what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, that could be a good that could be a good, fun thing for somebody because I guess if you have it automatically download and you close your eyes and you just hit hit play we'll and just, we never really give you a a, a a preview at the top of the show. It's usually just a random. Usually we try to make it related somehow, esoterically if you could figure it out, the tenuous connection. We should start posting the shows without putting the name of the movie in the title or the poster. <laughs> It just, you know, just, just, or just weird frame, you know, really weird frame grabs that are from the movie, but have nothing to do with, uh, you know. <laughs> that way people can see how long it'll take before they can figure out what the hell we're talking about. Or what show it is, because sometimes we don't even introduce ourselves. We'll just, we'll just go in and start talking for a half hour about our childhood, and people are like, what is this? I thought I downloaded a, a movie podcast. Um, but of course, we're talking about 1980s The Changeling, directed by Peter Medic. Uh, starring the great George C. Scott. Yes, George Campbell Scott. 
Um, is this our first George C. Scott movie, George the C. Scott? No. Unbelievable if it is, but I think it might be. It might be our first George C. Scott movie, but oddly enough, it's our third Gene Marsh movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have. There's a there's a couple people that are in here that uh, I might not be able to get at right now, but as we go through the movie, I'm going to recognize that they've actually had numerous appearances on the show. So uh, you know, like you said, Gene Marsh. Uh, Gene, Ma- Gene Marsh plays George C. Scott's wife in the beginning of the movie, and then there's a photo of yeah. her later in the movie. Now she is also in Willow. Yeah, which is we've done here, of course. And then last year we did Return to Oz, and she's in that. And she's in Return to Oz as well, yeah. Uh, we also, I guess since we're here, have in it, um, what's his darn name? Uh, uh, I'll find his name. Oh, Bernard uh, Burns. I'm probably spelling that, saying that wrong. He plays, I think his name's Robert. He's when they first get to, uh, he's George C. Scott's, the, the couple he knows when he gets to Seattle. Yeah. And he was Obi-Wan in the Star Wars radio plays that we did. So when we did our epic Star Wars cast, he was in it because we covered the radio shows that they did. First, oh, we No, we covered Star the Star. We didn't do all three because we only did the first movie, but we covered the Star Wars, and he's Obi-Wan in that, doing a great Obi-Wan. And I feel like we th- there is a couple more people as uh, we figure it out that I'll say, oh, and Joe, because there was another other, another other person in here too. Now, but uh, amazing, so- our first George C. Scott movie. <laughs> it, it actually is, because we both have uh, a, a, a strong, deep love for George C. Scott. Yeah, huge and, affinity. Uh, he's been brought up. Certainly, we've talked about yeah. him on the show, but we've never covered a yeah. movie. Um, there's also an actress in this movie. She plays Mrs. Norman, who is uh, the character of Claire's mother. The actress is yeah. Mad- Madeline oh. Sherwood. <laughs> Mrs. And- Pebbles? <laughs> And she has a very special place in our heart. Also, uh, for explain that to the to the to the gentlemen and the ladies that that have no frame of reference to that. When we were in college, and we know that there are so many listeners that love us talking about our film school years. Yeah, we say that because some people actually get mad that we bring it up so much. But uh, we had an editing class, and one of the continuing assignments that our teacher had every year for every class that came in was to. Uh, somehow she had a print of this, I'm guessing it was a television show of some sort or special. I feel like it was on either 13 or PBS. And I don't, I don't know why, but it was, and cause it was from, geez, like 1980 or 1979. Yeah. So it was an, it was an older sh- print that she had a copy of that aired on 13 or PBS. And I don't know why it even was produced or aired on that. And I yeah. think she edited it. She had something to do with it, or she was donated to her, maybe, yeah. through connections. But it was about... And our, and our editor, the, the, sorry to break in, she was this woman who we talked about a lot, Iris Khan, who she had won an award. I think she won an Oscar for uh, 321 Contact, maybe. So maybe she d- did have connections to PBS, and she helped edit the scene and do the right thing, the Radio Rahim scene. She talked about, So she was a really well-known editor, and it was very exciting for her to be teaching and working at the time at our school and teaching us editing. So I'm sorry. Go but uh, part of the assignment was that she had this print and we would each get a scene. And I don't know what the official title of it was, but uh, the couple in it, it was, a, it was an older couple and they were Mr. and Mrs. Prebbles. And, and the, these are actual film, as you're saying, a print yeah. meaning, you know, we were getting, we were getting film handed to us. And since it was an editing class, we were actually getting on reel to reel uh, steam backs with plates and, and we were actually 
cutting physically with a with a splicer, cutting this stuff. Yeah, we were on the flatbeds, old school, going going old yeah. school. And Madeline yeah. Sherwood, who plays the mother of the Claire Norman character, who's played by Trish uh, Van Devere, which is George C. Scott's wife. Uh, yeah, she was Mrs. Prebbles, and so when I and saw the, Mr. Prebbles was the guy from Seinfeld. He was the father. He was Jerry's father for the first couple episodes with the glasses that then was recast. Yeah. So if you remember that, Seinfeld fans, that was Mr. Prebbles. Yeah. He was also, he's in a one scene of uh, Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was weird. This the, the little, it was a short, and it was about the, weren't the two elderly, it was an elderly couple living in their house, like a, like a suburban house, and they were trying to kill each other. Like subtly, weren't they like poisoning the soup or something? It was something some sort like of like that. again like a like a dark comedy, you know. But we each got a scene, and we were all we each cut a scene, and we could cut it any way we wanted, basically. And so when she popped up in this, I was like, "Oh shit! I forgot Mrs. Prebbles yeah, look was who that in is. this movie." <laughs> Mrs. Prebbles is in it. I call her Mrs. Pebbles. Mrs. Prebbles. Uh, yeah, and, and it's a really interesting movie. Uh, the Changeling. Uh, the chain, yes. Getting back to the chain, <laughs> not, not Mister uh, Mrs. Preble. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a whole podcast on that short. Uh, it's a very interesting movie, and for me, since we said the title, I remember growing up, and I had two really really early m- memories, which I think then I had dreams about the night of, where it was the uh, little wheelchair in the attic, the, the the ghostly attic, and then the outside the house mansion in like the grass that's like you know the yellow grass because it's dead. Or the 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 kind of the, the it's unkept, and I had those two memories of seeing that when I was little. I didn't put together put together it was Georgie Scott. My first memories of Georgie Scott is seeing that movie Rage, which I've talked about, which I didn't know the name of until like five or six years ago, and then seeing him like Firestarter was our error. So seeing him and Art Carney in Firestarter was one of the first times I was able to pinpoint Georgie Scott. So I knew him from an early age, but then. Uh, when we, when you and I were trying to get through a ca- his catalog of movies, we watched like hardcore um, and uh, a bunch of other of his stuff. Uh, we this was on the list, the Changeling, and we we you know we got this, and uh, boy, we did it rock our worlds when we oh, watched it, you know, twenty some years ago. <laughs> of course, Exorcist three, uh, <sighs> Exorcist three, Anatomy of a Murder, The Hustler. Uh, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, you know, he's nominated for Pat, and he's got a weird, interesting career and a life that we can get into in a little while. But uh, yeah, he's got a, a, a slew of movies, and he's got such a singular Doctor Strangelove. Uh, he's got such a singular uh, look and act about him. Rescuers Down Under <laughs> for all those Disney fans. Uh, uh, very, very, very awesome actor who died very young. Actually, he died in 1999. When I think he was just hitting 70 or just over 70. And it's interesting to see when we do this movie that in this movie he's actually only 53. He was born in 1927. This is 1980. He died in 1999. So to think that he's 50, to think he's freaking 35 or 34 when he's doing Dr. Strangelove, if I've got my math right. When it, so uh, 37, 47, 57. Yeah, he's in his 30s when he's doing Dr. Strangelove, and he's near 40 or like our age when he's doing Patton is insane to me because he looks to me, he in this movie, he looks like he's in his 60s, the Changeling. You know, he doesn't look, but I guess it's just a hard life he had, you know. So he always looked old to me and not old, like grizzled, old, like, you know, he looked a decade older than his, uh, 
If he's in his mid to late fifties when he's doing Firestarter, to me he looked like he was in his sixties or you know. Yeah. Well, there's something about the people of that generation, or you know, when we yeah. were little, or in, especially in the seventies, but even earlier than that, the Depression just, era. Yeah. Just kind of felt older. I mean, he was. I mean, obviously, so many of them smoked and drank, and that that'll that'll put some mileage on you. <laughs> Yeah, and the diet, you know, you're just eating red meat, probably no greens. I mean, you know, and then when you grew, a lot of people growing up in the Depression during that era in, in the 30s, there was a lot of, of like a, a, a people, I forgot how people explained it to me, but even like the bodies on what they were, the, the kind of food they were eating kind of developed a certain way where you get the broad shoulder, like the Robert Mitchum kind of looked, the broad shoulders and the chiseled chin because it just, it was like a kind of hard living back then, especially not to say he grew up poor or anything, George C. E. Scott, but it was just... Um, it was a whole different lifestyle where you, yeah, you smoked all the time and, and you drank all the time and you drank coffee all the time. Nothing really probably, there was never really a thought of probably eating right or anything. The only thing maybe would just be exercise, which, you know, so uh, it did put a lot of mileage on you. So we do talk about that a lot where, yeah, you see people who seem so much older than they actually are when you go look them up uh, in these films. Uh, but the changeling, um, you know, for you, the the, the horror professor, uh, the changeling is quite a monumental film in the uh, annals of horror. <laughs> Those down dirty annals of horror. <laughs> yes, the annals of horror. I actually. Do you show- think people sleep on it? Like, what do you, do you mean? think people like like they don't know it? Oh yeah, I think it's. You know, I'm, I'm sure like there's the diehard horror fans or even the ones that aren't diehard but are into horror. I'm sure they've they've at the very least have heard of it. But uh, I'm sure that the people that kind of casual horror fans or people that just don't necessarily seek out horror movies, I'd be very surprised if they know it. And it's also weird because when you hear the producer, uh, Joel Michaels, talk about it he talks he can tell that he's old school because he talks he's like he takes almost offense that it's considered a horror movie yeah comes from from a generation of it it appears that he comes from a generation of people that like think horror movies are lesser than you know the the standard film like they're b movies yeah and to him this is like a supernatural thriller not a horror movie yeah but yeah. it's, you know, I think the people that seek out horror, even if they haven't seen it, I think it, it's made its way onto enough lists, especially at like Halloween time of like the scariest movie movements, so movie moments of all time from like Bravo or the scariest ghost movies or haunted house movies of all time. So I think if you're a horror fan, you've at least heard of it, if not seen it. But I think, you know, that's a very small section of the movie going audience are like the especially as we get on in years when it's you know getting 40 years on you i interrupted you what were you saying when you screened it at your horror class oh yeah so i actually um i taught i taught a class in horror movies for three years it's kind of a history of slash theory uh and uh, i did it for three semesters and i think the second semester i showed the changeling because i was trying to cover all the subgenres uh within kind of what that make up the genre as a whole. And I think the first year I showed the haunting, the Robert Wise. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I felt that that was just like, it was just a little too long and a little too slow for uh, an audience of young people that weren't necessarily film 
majors. I wasn't I wasn't teaching to the to the film students. I was teaching kind of film classes to liberal arts students, and so uh, circa two thousand six seven yeah five six seven yeah yeah so. Yeah, it was made up of a lot of people that just wanted to get a, a grade for watching movies. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so it was, it was a fine line to kind of straddle with that. But so when I felt like The Haunting didn't really play as well as I thought it would, the following year I decided to show The Changeling. And to my uh, happiness, it played pretty well. People really responded to it. I think there are parts, obviously, that uh, when we're talking about, the, you know, 15 years ago, 13 years ago, we're a little closer to the ring. And I think yeah. there's, there's some imagery and plot points that are semi, you know, similar to the ring. And yeah. so they, they kind of responded to like, oh, that's cool. Like, this is kind of like this other thing that I do know. Yeah, the, yeah. that was definitely in the zeitgeist at the time. I responded to that the same way when I first saw it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, this is just, this is where the ring got it from. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. They also responded to, like, surprisingly, uh, to my pleasant surprise, to, like, the soap opera esque, <laughs> soap operatic aspects of, like, this mystery. You know, it play. it's a little bit of melodramatic. And they kind of liked that it wasn't a typical horror movie, that there was like this yeah. other level of intrigue and mystery to it that it needed to be solved, which is something that we've talked at length about. And we always relate it to something like the Italian Giallo movies, which are kind of like murder mysteries. Uh, there's certainly like a, not really a whodunit aspect to this, but of like, there is a, there's, there's a mystery that needs to be solved. And George C. Scott is kind of like the everyman in a Hitchcockian or Giallo kind of way thrown into this mystery. And for reasons that are discussed or, or for reasons that unfold within the movie, he feels like he needs to solve it. And so yeah. that's kind of like a classic film convention or narrative convention that transcends horror and i think um that's something that the, that class that i taught kind of responded to now the following year um to go with ghost stories i ended up showing the orphanage uh the that uh, movie that's in spanish that was produced by guillermo del toro just because it was a little more recent and that was scary yeah it was scary and i thought it was like i, th I loved that movie when it came out and so yeah uh, like the following year it had come out on dvd and so i ended up showing that but uh i did i did sneak the changeling into one year of that class and it was it got a present reaction it wasn't like your maniac or uh you know some <laughs> other where people yeah. were just upset and by the content you can uh, go back to our you can go back to our maniac cast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that story. The, the Joe Spinell maniac. Um, it's weird because watching it now, I haven't seen it in years. And, you know, my DVD copy of it uh, is the one of the early, you know, uh, it's like an HBO presents release. And it's like, uh, you know, bonus features, interactive menu is that kind of a thing, you know, uh, scene selection. So uh, I hadn't seen it in years, uh, maybe 10 years or so. So it's so it's interesting coming back to it and seeing it again. And uh 
it, it, it's certainly fascinating how they don't really, it's, it's so easy. There's so many things that could have been done differently in this movie. Uh, the, the performance you get out of George C. Scott or the direction where, uh, this easily could have pl- been played for straight horror. It could have be- been a conjuring kind of a formulaic uh, supernatural horror movie where, to me, it's more of the gothic uh, turn of the century, 20th, 8, 19th to 20th century kind of a classical, uh, like more like we're saying, like the, the Haunting or The Uninvited, another great movie, The Innocence, all, you know, uh, the... All these kind, even you know, I think the innocence is what a retelling of Turn of the Screw, like those kind of um, uh, horror movies of that that um, you know, uh, I'm running out of words. That uh, Geist or you know. So in in a nutshell, uh, this uh, the movie's about uh, the character that George C. Scott plays is John Russell, and he's a composer, um, and I guess a music professor of some sort uh and he he witnesses a horrible uh car accident where in which his spoiler alert <laughs> in which his his uh, wife and oh well and, you know before before yeah i was gonna say if people haven't seen this they should definitely go watch this before they listen to this podcast but, yeah in which is yeah. in which his uh, wife and daughter are killed and so uh the movie's very much about uh grief and uh, yeah and dealing with grief and so he ends up moving to Seattle. Um, presumably, I mean, it's like the furthest place in the country that you can get, almost. He heard Starbucks was coming up, and he's like, <laughs> you know, I do like the rain, I do like the cold, and I want to get myself a Frappuccino. Because so. in, yeah, in the opening, he seems to, he lives in New York City, seems to have a nice, beautiful apartment on the Upper West Side, and then he moves to the other coast. And he's it's, working at uh, Lincoln Center. What's that there? Uh, uh, Ju- we presumably Juilliard. Juilliard right? I mean, we see him yeah. at Lincoln Center walking with a yeah. suitcase. He's I walking mean, out of Juilliard almost. So it's almost like he's saying goodbye. Uh, which we can get all into more into this, you know, as we go back. But yeah, he goes to Seattle, and he's trying to, I guess, start anew. Yeah, I mean, my point is just to give like, a general sense of what the story is: is that he ends up renting this old historical giant mansion and for some reason he wants he chooses to live in this like four story <laughs> yeah sprawling you know he wanted something but he also starts to fix it up too he, i mean i guess he's not really doing it yeah but he's having the groundskeepers you know it is a fixer-upper so yeah, he's yeah. kind of into that it's like it belongs to the Histor- historical society of the town and he got a sweet deal on rent and uh, there's a piano in there, and so he ends up renting this house, and then things of a supernatural or mysterious nature start to unfold. So yeah. that's kind of the gist of, of what the story is for the people that have decided to explore this movie uh, with us without having watched it first. Yeah. Yeah, he goes to Seattle, and he's also he's going to go teach there, too. Uh, and then he's going to compose, like you're saying, on his off time in the in the house and try to have some inspiration and put away what's happened to him uh it's a very interesting performance by him because uh the opening of the film uh when i first saw it and i don't know how it plays now uh, i didn't see that coming at all and i think it's a it's a hugely um like uh, uh incredibly horrific opening <laughs> and uh it's really a tour de force to him 
and George C. Scott's character or his performance, because then later you assume it's maybe four to six months afterward we see him walking from Juilliard through Columbus Circle back to his apartment, and his apartment's emptied, uh, that he's tried to get through all this grief. Because some people's criticism of this movie is George C. Scott's character in it and his portrayal, and that since George C. Scott had been known legendary as the badass as a, a guy that was very off-putting you didn't know if you if he was going to be trouble uh working with him or 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 just knowing him uh burly kind of a brawlster fighter kind of guy that uh his performance in this movie is that nothing at the end of the day nothing is really gonna uh he's not in any kind of impending danger you know and i i feel like between the first scene and then after the credits when we see him in in walking in new york city there's a lot I think we're supposed to imply that he's gone through the grief process, he says. So he's to the point now where he's not, like, this stuff is going to scare him, but he's still not like a wreck like he would have been right when he, when his, his wife and child were killed in front of him. You know what I mean? Well, you know, it's interesting that you... Jumping right in. <laughs> yeah, well, like, what you're talking about, that character, because one of the things that I love about this movie is that He's so cast against type, yeah. In my opinion, as to like how you would typically cat usually, you know, if you go to like the haunting, it's like this young girl who's you know distressed, you know, and that's yeah, kind of how we uh, feel about it. And you would never cast, you know, a guy like Georgie Scott in that kind of movie now. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost like uh, the brilliance. For one of the brilliant things about this movie is that they cast a guy that we would not suspect would be rattled or scared. Hey, that was my point of yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Or skeptical. I mean, you, you expect yeah. that he would be skeptical of this. And so when when he is rattled, and he never really shows like, very rarely, sh- or if ever in the movie, shows like real terror in terms of how he's yeah. reacting. But when he's unsettled by it, you know it's unsettling because <laughs> yeah he's almost such a skeptic yeah that it's it's that much more realistic you know and th- there's a couple scenes in the movie where you know he he there's i think one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is when he wakes up you know he's having this noise is happening every day at six in the morning and there's a there's a scene where he's he goes on that horse ride and then the horses start reminding him of his of his daughter that had passed away and there's a couple scenes in the movie where they actually do like almost where the, the actor's looking directly into the lens and he's actually, he's kind of lost. He, he's miles away when he's thinking and that, and the girl with him is like, oh, what's, what, what are you thinking about? And he's like, oh, I'm thinking about my daughter. She loves horses. And that scene then just cuts to the alarm clock at 6 a.m. and it pans over to him and he's hysterically crying in bed. And I found that such a powerful moment. Uh, that I stole it from my book, Blood in the Streets, but I just think it's such, for a guy like George C. Scott, uh, a man's man, that's where a guy does his crying in bed or in the shower or something away from people. Yeah, so I found alone. it such a, yeah, and I found it such a uh, uh, revealing and, and uh, uh, tender, uh, off-putting moment of him being there and crying because he's, you know, he's still savagely grieving for his the loss this horrific tragedy that happened to him with his wife and daughter being killed um but he's doing it privately you know he's still having so and, and i found that very honest 
And it was something that I think a lot of people could identify with who've experienced that kind of a tragedy. You know, seeing him privately just a mess. I mean, he's bawling, you know, which, you know, it's six in the morning, so he must have been up all night or whatever. He woke yeah, up and yeah. he's just, you know, you know. So it's just so, it, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And he does it well and it looks like he's bawling his eyes out, you know, so it's very sad. Yeah. And there's also the, you know, one of the reasons why I did decide to show this in the class when I did was because in in my mind, like it's kind of like the quintessential haunted house movie, you know? And a lot of the yeah. reason why it's the quintessential haunted house movie is because the things that became conventions of the haunted house movie kind of, in in some cases kind of developed after this movie, you know, I don't know yeah. if, if you would say that this movie is the cause of it, but it's certainly this movie brought to light things in a haunted house story, or at least in cinema that weren't necessarily there before um, in terms of like the seance and a lot of the way it's of uh, a lot of the way that it's all handled. And one of the things that I liked about the, that I love about this movie is that it kind of brings in all these elements that feel very true to what you feel or you read about or what in some cases experience when it comes about the supernatural and, and to relate it to what we're talking about or what Dion's talking about is that it, it seems when you hear about a lot of supernatural cases that grief has a lot to do with it. And it's yeah. even kind of mentioned within the movie that it's almost like they're susceptible to it. Like there's a, their guard is down and they're kind of in maybe in a subconscious way willing to let in uh, the the spirit or whatever, or at least in in a state of mind where they can rec they can recognize it, and so that's when the spirit tries to communicate with them. Um, yeah, they're more open to and, and you've said I think they do at some point because of this tragedy. He's open to this kind of uh, otherworldly kind of uh, communication. Yeah. So there's all uh, these things. There's all these things in. There's all these things in the movie that I, I guess one could argue from today's standards uh, from this to 40 years later are almost uh, cliche in this kind of movie. And not to say that there weren't haunted house movies. Dion named a, a bunch uh, earlier. Um, and then, you know, we had like burnt offerings, which just a couple years before this. Yeah. And the year, bef and the year before this came out, we had Amityville horror. And then the yeah. shining was the same year. And then poltergeist was a couple years after that. So it was, this movie was planted ghost story as well. Yeah. This movie was planted in a time of like a lot of these supernatural ghost story, haunted house movies. But, uh, I just think this movie handles the material so well. And in like, in a classy way. And I think maybe that's well, why the producer almost doesn't like it to be called a horror movie because, it, it maybe gives it that connotation gives it like uh, he fears maybe will give people a preconceived notion of what it is. Whereas this movie is they'll very, be poor, they'll be put off by it. Yeah. But it's, yeah. but it's almost like this, it's just a beautiful execution and, and a really good script. And of course, fantastic performance by George C. Scott, which weighs it all down with like this bit of gravitas. Yeah, and I think that's really what what kind of sets it in the reality. I mean, it, it seems like it is it is kind of chiseled in a side genre, where at the time, you know, if you if you call it a supernatural thriller or a horror movie, you have the poltergeist or you have the uh, maybe not poltergeist, but you have certainly the Amityville horror. But this is kind of like a ghost story, like um, 
the shining kind of borders too, but like the haunting or we said the uninvited or the innocence where it's a different kind it's played in a different way and it's and it's not played for the um it's played more realistically as opposed to playing for the fright factor or for the you know the blood coming out of the walls or you know the uh, the scaring and uh it seems like it's done in a different kind of way that that I guess then adding George C. Scott and his performance into it, like you said, weigh it down into a, a sense of reality that it's believable. And uh, I mean, the, a lot of the the majority of the special effects are very minimal, you know. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff where it's uh, what I love is there's stuff that the audience may see but the character won't see, like a light go on in the background or a door shutter open or he leaves the room and the piano plays a note by itself, like that kind of shit, which is terrifying. Um, and that sometimes could be scarier for the audience because they'll see something that the character doesn't. And then that, you know, that heightens the suspense and tension in the air, you know? So I do feel like it is a little different from a straight horror movie. I mean, the shining kind of teeters between horror and, uh, this idea, but this I think is in the other realm of like more of a Gothic, like you said, horror kind of picture. Well, it certainly doesn't rely on what, critics of the horror genre and i say critics not people that write about the horror genre but people that are critical of the horror genre it 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 does not rely on what they would maybe consider the cheap scare yeah exactly there isn't like the loud stings and the things jumping out of nowhere that make you jump out of your seat there's just there's a, a general uneasiness and there's moments that in my mind are chilling you know, they like yeah. gen- like genuinely give me goosebumps when they happen, but they don't. I don't jump out of my chair, but they they're creepy. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's they, like the in search of kind of creepy. It's like the unsolved mysteries kind of creepy. Well, you know, t- t- not to jump too far ahead, but when that ball comes down the stairs the first time, like I literally, yeah. I literally get goosebumps. Yeah, and that's because been spoofed I, for years now. One before. One because I know it's ha- what's it's coming. Like I know what that sound is because I've seen the movie so many times over the years. But two, just because it, it's the the movie is engaging in in such a great way that like I'm totally involved. I'm totally engaged. So what happens? It's just like I almost have goosebumps just ta- just thinking about that scene. And there's there's and, a few you mo- said- there's a few moments throughout the movie that are like that for me. Yeah, and you said that the, that it's just I think it's because of his perform. If you got like a uh, John Ritter or somebody else in the part that could have done it, great. But how because of the the what the back the baggage that George C. Scott's bringing to the role, uh, it then makes it so much more realistic. That once you believe him, you believe his current situation, and then you start seeing things through his prism of what's going on, and it it does add that much more level of frightening because. Um, you know, he's not, like you said, he's not a guy to be rattled or, 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 you know, scared easy. So when you start seeing these things and then it's almost, he almost automatically sees that this can't be some sort of hoax or whatever. Uh, it does add a level of, uh, of tension that's very frightening for the audience and very unsettling. Uh, and then certainly seances aren't new in movies, but you know, there's there's some great movies from the 40s and 50s that have seances in it, and um, all the names escape me right now. Sure. Um, but this certainly, like you said, around this time, seeing a seance and something that I think the that movie, uh, the others from the early 2000s borrowed. Uh, you know, 
the the idea of even doing like the the having the psychic um yeah. the automatic writing, writing you know yeah. yeah that's frightening that's something you don't see you know because when you think of a seance you're thinking of a crystal ball and everyone holding hands you know where this is just something uh almost you, you get elements of the sixth sense as well where you know since George C. scott is a composer he has a reel-to-reel that he can record his demos on so he records the event and then when he plays it back he starts hearing stuff, which is also frightening, which was something that, you know, you, you heard in the sixth sense years later. Yeah, um, well, that's it. It's like that's that's another aspect of, like I said, one of the reasons why I chose this. So there were all these elements that cobbled together like the perfect haunted house movie in a way. Yeah. Like the, what is it, AVP or whatever, like the recording phenomena of like capturing things on tape, the seance, yeah. the automatic writing, the the bumps in the wall. And, the, and like the, the hidden, AVP, yeah. The hidden... The hidden door. The, yeah, the stairway upstairs yeah. that goes to, you know, yeah. And it's uh, uh, all this stuff. And it's it's funny because when you see, when you watch this, and this is on, like Scorsese calls it one of the scariest movies of all time or the scariest movie of all time. And, you know, uh, I think Spielberg showed this to the crew uh, when he was doing Poltergeist saying, this is what I want the, our movie to have the tone and, and, and feel like. Uh, and, you know, the director says... Um, uh, Spielberg and, and Scorsese both are personal prints of this movie. Uh, when you watch this movie, you you when and you start looking at the different elements, you see that these are all in the ring, Sixth Sense, the the others, uh, all these other you know movies nowadays. That the, the, these are all elements that have been taken. Uh, the ball bouncing down the stairs. Uh, that's been, you know, I think satirized in one of the scary movies and uh, some other stuff. It's just, you don't really like, oh, this, that's from this. This is from that. You know, it's all coming from this movie. Yeah. Now, Peter Medic is a pretty uh, interesting uh, director in that I think he's, I want to say he's Hungarian, but. Uh, yeah, he's how- Hungarian. And and he uh, he ended up uh, fleeing the U. He fl- fled Hungary in '56 because there was an uprising against the communist regime there, the the uh, Marxist uh, regime that was then. I think the Soviet Union then cobbled or or kind of uh, crushed that that rebellion. But he fled and he went to the UK. And then in the UK, he he you know he he uh, studied there. And then his first movie is 1968 Negatives. It's called. Yeah. Uh, and he has a fascinating career because, I mean, there's a movie that just came out a couple of years ago, which I haven't seen, a documentary called The Ghost of Peter Sellers, 2018. And it's about um, uh, Medic having this meteoric rise of being a director in the 70s. And uh, in the early 70s, he starts doing this film with Peter Sellers, this, this farce pirate movie that ends up, I think they shoot the majority of it, yeah. but then Peter Sellers doesn't want to be in it or doesn't want to do it. Do you know anything about this? I mean, I know that and he it's... did a movie with him called The Ghost in the Noonday Sun, but I don't know if that's the movie you're referring to. Yeah, I think it. it's, I, I don't know if there was issues where it wasn't released or something, but uh, as soon as Peter, because like, you know, Peter Sellers was the hugest thing at the, at the time. So when he got him in it, it was like, oh my gosh, we're getting gold. But as soon as Peter Sellers got on set, he was feigning illness. He didn't want to be there. He was trying to muck up scenes. So it almost ruined Medic's career because I don't know if this movie was ever released or whatever. So then so many years later, they reconciled, I think, Peter Sellers and him. And then Peter Sellers passed away. So this documentary is all about that. But he had such a, a amazing history of who he worked with and, and, and movies he did up until the point where then 
recently he was directing episodes of Breaking Bad, of The Wire, of um, uh, Hannibal. You know, yeah. so he, he and he's I think in his eighties now, but he's still you know working right up until recently. Sure. He also uh, directed an episode of um, Masters of Horror, which was that Showtime show yes, that, he did. that Mick Garris put together, and Mick Garris asked him to participate because he was such a huge fan of the changeling and he wanted him to do another horror story. Uh, which episode did he do? I, I don't remember which one it was. Um, but, uh, Medic also directed, uh, the ruling class with Peter O'Toole, uh, Zorro, the gay blade with George Hamilton, which I think a lot of people from our, <laughs> our generation kind of remember that. Um, yeah. Uh, the Men's Club with Jennifer Jason Lee, Roy Scheider, Harry Keitel, Frank Langella, and Treat Williams, which is a fantastic cast. cast and a movie that you introduced me to, uh, Romeo is Bleeding with Gary Oldman and Lena Owen. I love Romeo is Bleeding. Uh, yeah, I didn't know he directed that. That's mm. freaking amazing. That's, yeah. a, that's a hidden gem that no one knows about. That's a, a fabulous movie. Um, very sad. And, Sometimes she stays a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And... Uh, uh, Joel Michaels, I don't know how to pronounce his middle name, and I don't even know if he he goes by his middle name, but uh, he he was a producer. He had worked a lot in Canada, and that's why this movie ended up being shot in Vancouver. But uh, most of this movie was shot in Vancouver. But he also uh, produced the Philadelphia Experiment, Universal Soldier, which is a classic, <laughs> Stargate, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cutthroat Island, uh, Lolita, with the one with Jeremy Irons. Uh, Term- yeah, and Franklin Jella. Terminator 3, uh, Rise of the Machines, and Basic Instinct 2. Nice. And, the recent one. And uh, supposedly how he came across this was he was shooting a movie in Canada and he had come back to L.A. to take care of some business for a few days or and whatnot. And some, and I, don't know, I don't know how he got his hands on to this tape. I would imagine somebody gave it to him to listen to and he didn't just find it in some mysterious haunting way. What's this? <laughs> but uh, he uh, tells the story of he he was listening to this audio cassette of uh, yeah. a playwright, uh, composer, and writer named Russell Hunter, and the tape was yes, Russell Jeff- Ellis and real name yeah yeah Russell Hunter. We can get into him in a minute, but yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Uh, he this tape was this uh, artist. Uh, like I said, he he many different mediums, but. Uh, for our purposes, also a, a very gifted piano player and a composer, reciting this story of him living in this old house. And he just tells the story that basically ends up becoming very closely the basis of the changeling. And yeah. uh, uh, Joel Michaels talks about how he listened to this for hours so it must have been more than one tape because you couldn't have fit like three hours on an audio cassette back in 1970 flipping a lot of flipping <laughs> and then unless the, it was real to real you know i mean unless it was like a, you know hi-fi yeah but, but then he says that the next day he contacted uh russell hunter and said and, and then bought the rights to that story um but yeah. it was all through just listening to this guy who was telling what is thought to be the true his true life experience with the supernatural uh, to this tape, and then it was chilling and interesting enough that Joel Michaels 
bought the rights and Joel Michaels, I believe, has even said like to him it didn't even matter whether it was true or not. It was just like yeah. that wasn't why he bought it, because it was this real life thing. He just thought the story was very compelling. Um and, we'll, um, and I we'll, saw No go, sorry. I was just gonna say, and we can get more into like the specifics of that story and, and this guy Russell Hunter, whose real name is uh Russell Ellis. But um I just thought that was a very interesting way to come to a script and then so joel michaels buys the rights to it and then he ends up hiring writers to kind of shape that story into a a screenplay um i also saw at the beginning of the the movie mario kazar is on it am i saying his name right who we know i think from uh total recall he's done some he's a producer or he he's done some stuff i saw his name at the top of this so i thought he was he's uh known to our generation and uh we, we can't gloss over that this is a big movie for Canada. This was, uh, you know, we had other movies like the stuff Bob Clark was shooting up there and stuff, but this is really well-renowned, I guess, in Canada. It was very famous, won a lot of awards up in Canada and kind of is a legendary movie within the Canadian film industry of, of you know, uh, they're very proud of up there. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the uh, deal with uh, Canada is a lot of the films and stuff are funded or co-funded by the Canadian government, uh, and if you're to a even tax as, credits. even as a, 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 if an American production wants to go to Canada to shoot, there's all these rules about how many, what's the percentage of people that are not American work, I mean not Canadian working on the film versus Canadian people, because it's all about bringing business and work and, and income to the people of Canada. So they, it's a very serious business up there, and but uh, in a lot of ways it's especially back then there was a lot more artistic freedom uh in terms of that like the canadian government would fund a movie like shivers by david cronenberg yeah. <laughs> or um uh, uh, uh black christmas yeah so you uh, know canada has a very uh, interesting and vibrant and this is shot in vancouver like probably 79 ish yeah victoria vancouver right around that this, area you know this is a good six seven eight years before a lot of american television production ends up going up there to shoot things like 21 jump street and macgyver uh, and to the, and then later on you know into the 90s almost it felt like almost everything was shot in vancouver so yeah it seems that, that little do we know that a lot of our americana of the 80s and 90s was uh vancouver toronto era you know the fly right cronenberg's the fly shot up there yeah well that was the, uh, that's on the other side of the of, of the country but but i mean cronenberg cronenberg is a it's a canadian filmmaker so yeah um, yeah, duh. But, yeah but but, <laughs> yeah. but tell a lot of television to this day so, i mean sure. all, all those w uh cw warner brothers uh Things like the Flash, Arrow, all those shows are shot up in in Canada too. So I mean, still to this yeah, day, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, good tax write off up there, and it's you know, and it doubles. It's very good because it doubles for a lot of it doubles for New York or it doubles for L.A. It can it can very easily replicate their cities, and their their very clean cities can replicate our areas. I believe Rumble uh, in the Bronx, and it's not too far. I believe Rumble in the Bronx was shot up there. <laughs> exactly, and all exactly the, like the Bronx, and all the all the Hallmark movies are shot up there. Yeah. Oh, which is near and dear to your heart. You love those Hallmark Very movies. Very much so. <laughs> You're penning one right now as we speak. Uh, Blake's going to be the future, uh, you know, he's going to corner the market on those Hallmark movies. Um, this story is very interesting because I knew nothing of it until we started researching this movie. Uh, and from what I've 
learned and gleaned now that I guess it is kind of a uh, urban legend of Denver, Colorado, where the original story took place and this all happened. Uh, it's fascinating, this Russell uh, Hunter character, or not character, but person who was, I guess, a, a childhood musical prodigy who, I guess, was born in um, uh, Illinois, but his family, I guess, maybe owned a B&B uh, in Denver. So he went to go, I think, go back to Denver to leave, what, leave L.A. or New York and try to go back and compose and maybe help the, the parents out with their business. But he rents this house uh, in the Cheeseman Park area of Denver and uh, in the late 60s, 68, 69, I think he gets a year lease to go back and kind of just compose or whatever. And then all this stuff starts happening, um, which is kind of uh, exciting. And there is a uh, Changeling Special Edition Blu-ray, which has some... Sp- great featurettes on it and they have a great featurette on the history of all this too but if you go online and you google um you know the changeling movie real story you'll get a lot of links from the denverlibrary.org society uh, because they're very into it too and they've actually done a lot of extensive q a's with all local supernatural authors and stuff about is it true is it true you know is it not true and the facts about it so it's very interesting yeah i mean it's worth mentioning that the the featurette on the on the Blu-ray that Dan's referring to by Severin films uh, is with a Dr. Phil Goodstein who wrote a book has written many books about Denver, but uh, the book that he's referring to, he's talking about in the thing in the uh, featurette is that I guess he wrote a book called ghosts of Denver, Denver Capitol Hill, which I'm assuming I haven't read it, but I'm assuming chronicles a lot of supernatural activity that happens in that area. And one of the things obviously he talks about, uh, I assume he talks at great length about in the book is the the uh, the house this and, incident and yeah and the and the Russell Hunter slash Ellis uh, story yeah he brings up in the in the feature he brings up a really interesting um, point which I you know you forget is that you know in the uh, when the West was being populated in the in the late nineteenth century and you have um, a lot of people would go west for their ailments. If you had any kind of uh, respiratory disease or anything, you do think about people would have to move to different climates because it would be better for them. So he does bring a point up that a lot of people would move to the Denver area because for health, but then they would end up passing away for whatever reason. And then, so you, with the population growing, you did have a lot of people then passing away. So they, they built in 1859, this uh, Mount Prospect Cemetery uh, in the mid 18. 50s, 60s, there was this resurgence or this surge into building these elegant kind of uh, landscape cemeteries that you can go and not only visit your loved ones in, but you can, it would be like a park where you can go and hang out and get away from the city life, the urban areas, because there weren't a lot of public parks at that time. So they had built this prospect park where they had five to 10,000 people buried. But I guess uh, for some reason it wasn't kept, the grounds weren't kept up well, and there was issues with. Um, uh, just making it not look overrun or overgrown. So uh, they decided to turn this Cheeseman, this Cheeseman Park area where the cemetery was into a proper park. They wanted because it was going to be, I guess, the, I've never been to Denver, but maybe it would be the center of town or, 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 or something that people could populate. Yeah, it describes uh, it as like a, a large central park. You know, I guess they're yeah. probably trying to make the town more... Uh, 
you know, classier or bring more people to the town for population purposes. And instead of having this giant cemetery in the middle of town, they decide, yeah, somebody decides that, hey, let's put like this beautiful bit of nature, much like Central Park is in the middle of Manhattan, in the middle of this town. And this is around on the 1890s they start figuring this out. So by that point, they have, what, ten to 20,000 people already buried there. And this is something you hear commonly. I mean, I know this turns to be the subplot of Poltergeist, but, I mean, where I'm from, New Haven, uh, the New Haven Green that Blake knows, uh, that was originally a cemetery, and then they actually moved. I, I think it's also an example where they didn't move the bodies, but they did move the headstones to a Grove Street Cemetery. Uh, but that would happen a lot where they would, you know, the center of town would turn into from the cemetery to be like the, the focal point of nature or a park or something. So they would have to move a cemetery. So that happens here where they're like, well, let's move the cemetery. And it has, this is where you get into like the supernatural aspects of the story where it's the, it's like the old Indian burial ground, quote unquote, where it's the, uh, they start trying to move, they, they hire a company to, to move the bodies uh, and this company is getting a, a dollar ninety a head to move a body, which you know in the 1890s is a good amount of money. But then I guess you start to realize how hard it is to actually move 10,000 remains of people. So it becomes this big, I guess, uproar because the the, the company and the person running the company is really cutting costs and uh, doing it in a really haphazard way. So he gets into a crap load of trouble, and the city kind of just throws the guy out, maybe even charges the guy with kind of like malpractice, and then they make an edict like, listen, if you have relatives buried in the cemetery, you have 90 days to move them uh, because we're going to turn it, as we said, into this this proper park. So after that, I guess not everybody, there's still, what, 5,000 people still interred. Uh, not, I don't know how many people from that number then are removed by their relatives properly, but, but when they build the park, um, there's still a good amount of people whose remains are still there. Yeah, something uh, something and, like between two and 5,000 bodies are still buried beneath the park because the the loved ones never came and claimed yeah. the body to move it for whatever reason. Plus they were doing, I guess, pauper funerals there too. So they would have, uh, you know, they would have these funerals and then, you know, since paupers couldn't really pay. And at the time uh, it sounds a little cynical, but the mortuary business was a business. They would not cut costs, caught costs, but caught cut costs. But they would, um, they would just, you know, uh, do, wouldn't bury you, you know, with any kind of elegance or reverence. So you had these, not mass graves, but you have these graves of people buried, maybe stacked on top of each other, kind of like what they do now in New York City in some points. So you had a lot of people in this area, uh, well, also, like this potter's field mixed with this proper cemetery. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. Goodstein from the future, I kind of... Also, Who seems like a fascinating guy. <laughs> I'd love to hang out with him. <laughs> also kind of implies that, like, because it wasn't lucrative for these pauper funerals, that, you know, sometimes they just take them and and almost just dump them in an empty lot somewhere and just bury them very shallowly, not even on the cemetery grounds. So that later on, when, you know, they start es- excavating the, the city to put in, like, running water and whatnot, like, putting pipes into the ground, they start, like, uncovering bodies and these empty yeah. lots that were purchased to, to start doing this kind of work. That's really the impetus where there is they start running, uh, I guess, pipes and they start laying a lot of all this kind of uh, proper, 
city stuff. And that's the impetus to then start making the the surrounding areas of this Cheeseman uh, Park into elegant homes of the turn of the century, these mansions and nice townhouses. So when they start digging them, to, to and this is what Blake's saying, you're starting to find all these kind of pauper mass graves or just, you know, people's graves that they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we didn't know people were buried here. So um, at this point, you know, they build a house around 1898, uh, one of the many houses that go up, there's this Henry Treat Rogers, who's a very famous, successful attorney of the area. Uh, he has a very well-renowned re- re- uh, practice, as well as he's into, he's a, he, he's into one of these people who's in the parks and doing these kind of nice urban, he's an advocate, a progressive advocate for parks and, and cityscapes. So he's one of the people that this Henry Treat Rogers who builds a house in the area and his house is there. And that's eventually the house that ends up that Russell Hunter ends up then moving into, uh, some, what is that? 60 years, 65 years later. Um, Henry Treat Rogers, he ends up, uh, I think, uh, he has a daughter, I think is the story. And then we're summarizing this because this isn't really that important, but I think the mother dies in childbirth. Oh, yeah, go. I was going to say that uh, I don't think he and maybe maybe uh, a child ends up dying in childbirth along with his wife. I, that I don't know, but I, from what I've heard, that he didn't didn't actually have children. Okay, uh, but he loved children, and I think he was very close to maybe his his niece and his nephew. Oh, maybe. okay, because and then when, he maybe adopts them. Yeah, or because something. when he and they lived at that house with him at periods throughout his you know their lives. Uh, when he passed away in 1922, the house gets left to his niece, who is uh, Frances Ristine. Um, yes. And she also, I don't, I don't think, ends up having any kids. Uh, and then after she passes away eventually, the house she kind passes of- passes away in 34. That house ends up, it still remains like a single family uh, mansion uh, when, just like in New York here, you know, a lot of these brownstones at one point were- one person's house but now they're split up into like eight apartments <laughs> you yeah. know where a lot of when a lot of those big houses and stuff were being torn down or turned into uh multiple family homes that house always kind of remained a single family home and then uh it had been i guess passed through people i don't know if they rented it or whatever but then by the time russell ellis aka russell hunter who we've been talking about at the time he rents it um it had been vacant for well over a year at that point. Yeah. And uh, the prior people who had, who had lived in the house supposedly had really, uh, really had not reported any kind of paranormal activity or anything. Uh, but Russell goes in and then Russell, who ends up being our George C. Scott character, ends up starts hearing and uh, all this phenomenon starts happening in the house, which actually surprisingly goes kind of straight along with our changeling story where he starts hearing this noise, this bouncing. He doesn't know what it is. Um, uh, it's getting worse. He can't figure it out. And then he, uh, he has all this other stuff start going on in the house. Um, well, he starts hearing, he, sees a, he starts hearing this banging or, or that, and he can't find it and he's living with it and he can't figure out what it is. And um, eventually uh, supposedly he, he hires an architect well, they can see a window outside the house, and it's like an attic window, but you can't find in the house how to get up. There's no way to get up to the attic. And I guess for me reading on these, uh, the comments section of the Denver Library site who had hosted these events, 
there's people who've actually said, oh, wait, I lived in the house from X amount of time, X amount of time, grew up there, you know, in the 50s or whatever. And uh, it was kept really well, really nice, but we can never find, my dad can never find out how to get up there. So what Russell ends up doing is he hires an architect and he has an architect try to figure it out. And they actually find uh, in a pantry or in a closet. Yeah, I'm guessing it's a closet because I think it's, and it was only on the second floor of the house. So it's like a, a but, maybe a butler's pantry or, or a butler's <laughs> something. They find a, a fake wall that leads to a staircase that goes up to this to this attic area. Yeah. And uh, while in the exploring the attic, he's apparently finds uh, a bouncing ball, like a rubber ball that belongs to a sickly child because he ends up finding a diary. What I find funny in the movie is like they keep on picking up this diary. But they're never curious to read what's in it. <laughs> yeah, I thought it's funny because when you hear what we're talking about now, the real story, and then when you see in the movie, you know, George C. Scott, George C. Scott, see the diary, look at the diary, pick the diary up. He looks at it, and then when he has um, uh, Trish uh, uh, Vanderveer go up there, she looks at it, and she's like, it's in a child's writing. But you think he'd take it down and maybe do a little, re- you know, maybe there'd be a shot. It's like there's a supposedly of legend, the cutaway shots of, uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, there's supposedly a scene where he goes downstairs into the boiler room, which is all in the book, and he finds a photo album, and it has all paper clippings of the history of the Overlook, and that's how Jack Torrance learns about the Overlook. And there's even a scene in The Shining where he's at the typewriter, and, and Shelley Duvall comes in, and he starts getting nasty with her. You could see on the table, it's just the typewriter, his cigarettes, the ashtray, and this book open. And that's supposed to imply that they did shoot that scene. So here you would think they'd just be some cutaway of maybe you know george C. scott thumbing through it while he was chain smoking but you don't have any of that he just takes the music box down yeah they're just like oh look there's a you know there's a book and then they just put it back down on the desk yeah so supposedly the the big takeaway from this is russell goes up into the attic and then he finds this diary that was supposedly written uh in the 19 aughts and supposedly it's about this child name written by this child named eric who is uh, an invalid or has a disability, and he's locked away up in this attic. And the legend is that that supposedly is in the supposed diary is that Hunter says that he has a $70 million inheritance because I think his mother, the father, whoever the the family was, the father had married uh, into a wealthy, wealthy family, which is kind of like what happens here in this movie for the backstory. The mother dies in childbirth, the then the son is an invalid, but the son, the will, the inheritance of seventy million is being left to the son. But the son has to turn to age twenty-one to get the inheritance. Now, if the son passes away before uh, he turns twenty-one, the inheritance goes to a charity or bypasses him and goes to another point of the family. So the father doesn't have; he's a uh, an executor on the will, uh, or because he's the the. Um, uh, the the boy's guardian but he doesn't have access to the to the to the to the inheritance so supposedly what ends up happening is which is where we get to our story is that the boy is evidently murdered by the father and replaced yeah well we, there's he's he dies um yeah. apparently you know in terms of like the the quote-unquote real story um they end up adopting a kid and they lock little eight-year-old Eric in the attic and they just start presenting the new kid as Eric, even though Eric is still alive. 
Uh, yeah. And that's why he's up in the attic is because they've just like locked him up there. And so his diary is of him living up in this attic for how many years? Yeah. You know, and then eventually he does bouncing die. this ball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and eventually he does die before the age of 21. Uh, and I don't know if they, if anybody knows whether it was of natural causes or, or murder and that, that he was apparently, uh, his body was dumped on, uh, the far Southeast edge of town. Um, yeah, which I guess people actually, there is a, I forget the name, there's actually an address where they determine where they think uh, the body was actually dumped. Uh, and then the, 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 the replacement boy who was adopted, I think he goes to the Europe and then he comes back after World War I, 1918. So he's, well, you know, that's, he's, that's he's, in the movie. I don't, I don't know if that's okay. what really I thought happened. that was part of, but it could but be. But he grows up to be some sort of Denver, wealthy Denver businessman or, or politician is yeah, the story. Yeah. But no one can pinpoint from Hunter's supposed story of who this is. If this is the Henry Treat Rogers family, because like you indicated uh, and corrected me, Henry Treat Rogers supposedly never had children. Yeah. So there's kind of a speculation of, well, then actually then if this happened post the niece dying in 34, then the diary would only be 30 years old or so when he finds it in the now, attic. Now, what little information we have uh, from this story, because we don't actually, ha- we haven't talked to Russell Hunter. We, you know, we're, we're hearing it eighth hand. <laughs> but where, with what information we do have, where I get kind of skeptical is um, that I just don't know if an eight-year-old kid would comprehend all this enough to be able to like write it down like he might understand that he's locked in the attic but i'm not sure he would the kid would know that he's there that he's going to inherit 70 million dollars yeah the 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 indication is that the kid is the one he's 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 again gleaning all this from the child's diary as opposed to newspaper accounts yeah so So, uh, (laughs) so unless that's that's where it falls apart a little bit for me but like i said we don't Maybe the actual you don't know if we're telling the story right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there might be another element to the story that we don't know, which is how the information is being. Yeah, maybe he went to the microfilm, microfiche, and he found corresponding papers to. to so he he get he finds this stuff, but then evidently the 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 poltergeist activity continues. He, it doesn't, you know, doors are shutting in his face, glass is breaking. It's getting really bad so he what he he's still holding on to this supposed secret yeah well he that's an outed that's part of the uh the the lore of the the motivation of this yeah. is that you know the the thought process is that he's not re- he's discovered this secret but he's not doing anything about it so the activity yeah. continues because or maybe even escalates because he's not tell he's not revealing this information to anybody so he ends up having himself a seance uh Russell does at the house, I guess over the course of three nights. Uh, but he's, and then maybe in the seances, maybe that's where he's getting the clerical information about the will or whatever. Uh, but uh, he still doesn't open up to anybody about this secret. So after having the seance and maybe learning everything else and filling the pieces of the pie in, uh, he even has episcopal priests come over, and he they they exercise the house with even you know water from the Jordan River. But the the, the I guess the, uh, the 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 poltergeist activity keeps going, and it keeps getting worse. So in our story here, Russell Hunter's story, it's by the time his lease goes up in a year, he's out. He says, "F this, I'm I'm out of here." <laughs> and 
you know, he's like, I ain't going to do anything else. So and then he leaves, supposedly. And, and then what ends up happening to the house is, I guess, other people move in. And from what I hear, what I hear, what I've read, that, you know, there's, there's really no other kind of uh, uh, stuff, activity. But then I guess in the early 80s, I think the house is demolished to make way for an apartment complex, the summer house. And it ends up being 1313 Williams Street if people want to go and, you know, stalk the area. <laughs> uh, and this is another point of skepticism in, in his story for me, R- Russell Hunters, because he said he it sounds like he gets his facts straight. Because from what I from the account I hear that I read is that he says he left because he couldn't take it anymore. And then he showed up the day the house is being demolished. And so there's a there's a lag of time there because I hear the place doesn't get demolished until the early 80s. Uh 83, 84 to put this other uh, apartment complex up. But in his story, he says he, he showed up for when the day that the house was demolished and when it was being demolished, the house evidently kind of blew up or, or a wall fell outward and killed one of the construction workers that was working on the demolition. Yeah. Um, which then people uh, that I read on the library site, the historical society can find no, proof of they've looked and you know there was no death that occurred when this place was raised but what is interesting is which also uh, phil brookstein the guy in the featurette who is the local historian who's uh, recollecting all this uh, in the featurette he points to there's a picture everybody cites when you go google the real house and he says he doesn't think that's the actual house that's being shown he thinks that's a house five blocks away because all these houses were in kind of the same area on 18th in william street is the house that he sees pictured in these old uh pictures but from what brookstein says is when this high rise goes up uh the poltergeist it becomes like poltergeist three where this activity kind of continues where people uh, in the apartment building kind of hear piano playing uh these concertos because I, you know, uh, I guess there was a piano in the house. We, we had said already when, um, Russell Hunter moved yeah. in. So when this apartment building goes up, people are still hearing this, uh, this piano playing, or if they take the stairs and the, and the, and the staircases, there's a ball they see coming down. Uh, or even to the point where once the house was hazed, uh, there's, kids who play in the Cheeseman Park start seeing the sickly eight-year-old boy with a ball that wants to play with them that disappears. He also All that kind of a thing. Yeah, he also proposes this theory that the changeling is uh, the story revolves around this family, uh, the Betcher family, where Char- Oh yeah, because he, yeah, he does his own He does his, his own investigation. Yeah, he, and he says this is the timeline that matches is, and then he presents this family, which is uh, Charles the first, I guess, was like a, a business guy, and uh, he, uh, his son Claude follows in his footsteps, which is like prominent businessman in town, and then uh, Claude's son Charles Jr., who's born in nineteen hundred, um ends up not being anything like his, his father or his grandfather and has a very troubled youth. And then even as he goes into adulthood, his wife uh, kills herself and she has all these weird things happen, you know, tragic things happen throughout his life because um, he has a nephew named uh, Spicer Breeden and uh, Charlene Humphrey Betcher Breeden who is related to uh, Spicer Breeden, who's related to the Betcher family, her husband and her are the ones 
that end up buying the house and tearing it down. So I guess the thought process is that uh, because there because this this Charles Jr was had was troubled and didn't end up you know fulfilling his potential that maybe he was the changeling and that maybe as uh Possibly, allegedly, that maybe Charlene Humphrey Betcher Breeden ended up buying that house to tear it down and then build the summer house to kind of, I'm guessing, cover the th- the, the theory is to cover up any re- covers tracks, any uh, remaining evidence that might hold true. Uh, and then she ends up dying uh, shortly after the the summer house apartment building is completed at the age of forty or sometime in her forties. Of breast cancer, so that's another like, is there some weird curse that's happening to this family? Yeah, and uh, you know, I get it's a real prominent area, Cheeseman Park in Denver. So that all happens. This story, I mean, take it as you will, our our elongated uh, retelling of it. That if if it's plausible for Russell Hunter, there's other occasions where people say that he, you know he was at dinner parties and said he you know he he kind of uh, fattened a lot of it up. Some of it's kind of it's, sounds kind of preposterous, just the timeline of it all. But it's certainly a fascinating story to which we come around is to what you're saying when um, Joel uh, B. Michaels hears an audio recording of, of, of Hunter retelling it. And he buys the rights and he gets two other people, uh, William Gray and Diana Maddox, to write the screenplay. And supposedly they do a fuckload of research into the paranormal um, psychic activity, uh, poltergeist activity, um, known hauntings, and they incorporate all that into the script that they end up writing. Um, and then they have to give Hunter a credit because it's basically his idea and his story. Yeah. They go back to him for kind of, um, you know, pointers on where they're going, if it's right and all that. But it is amazing how, and I clearly, uh, you know, George C. Scott's character name being named John Russell is a nod to, to Russell Hunter, but it is amazing how close the story is. Yeah, pretty the almost plot points, pretty accurately uh, depicted yeah. within this within the film. And you even get that kind of the ring kind of a uh, not only the idea of when they go dig up the child's body in the well, but you even got get the ring kind of plot twist where just because you found the body doesn't mean you fulfilled and exposed the secret. Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, I remember that being quite frightening when you first see the ring that there's an extra, you know, oh, you, you let the fucking kid out, you know, <laughs> you, you know, it's like that plot twist where it, it this happens in the changeling yeah. too, where it's you just because you discover the body, you have to still right the wrong or expose this horrible, you know, secret that was uh, covered up for now, how many when years. We, when we watched this tonight, um, I, I, I had a, uh, I remembered this, this, and I'm sure you must have known this story back from what happened because I knew you by this point. But uh, seeing the house, the way they shot the house and the ho- the house itself within this movie, reminded me of the story. And I'll and I'll keep it very uh, short, as much as short as I can. But it's it reminded me of it because New Year's Eve of 1999 into 2000, so the big Y2K. Yeah, um, yeah. I went to go see Billy Joel. In, I was going to say, yeah. At uh, Madison Square Garden with my friend Tom, his wife, and his son, who I taught hockey to in the summers. And that's how I knew Tom. And uh, we were at school outside of New York City, but school was out. Fall, 
vacation. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> it was Christmas break. So we had nowhere to stay, but Tom taught at a lot at a at an elementary or a high school in like the Hudson Valley, somewhere between Albany and uh, uh, and New York City. And so after the, he needed some place to stay. So it was after, you know, the show probably ended at like one a.m. We took Metro. And you're no- in New York City at the Garden then. Yeah, yeah. After the Billy Joel show, we took Metro North on the uh, Yonkers line, Hudson, on the Hudson, Hudson line, line, up to someplace, and he had arranged for us to stay. Which and, is along the Hudson River for people. Yeah. yeah you're going, you know, it's kind of like North by Northwest. Yeah. When you see Cary Grant going up, that's, you know, you pass the Tappan Zee. You're going, uh, so we went north, north. Uh, up to someplace near where he taught school because... The mother of one of his students, or the, I guess the parents of one of his students, the father was a warden at a prison. Oh, that's this is this story. <laughs> okay. And when I guess when you're a warden of a prison, you get a house on the on the prison grounds. But his family give you a little. <clears throat> but the family didn't live there. But so it was somehow arranged that we were going to stay there that night at this mansion. On the prison grounds, somewhere between here, between New York City and Albany. And I remember we pulled up to like the prison gate and I guess that they had left the keys with the, with the prison guard. And, and what time is this? Are, if, if the, if the Joel yeah. concert's out at one thirty in the morning, you got to make your way from, from the garden to Grand Central. Yeah. Then you get your train on and that, this sounds like it's an hour journey up north. So you <clears throat> Sounds like it's like three or four in the morning. You're it arriving have, there. It must have it like the sun's coming up already. It couldn't have been earlier than two thirty. I mean, I, I yeah, I, that would have to be like the absolute. We made good time, so I'm guessing <laughs> it was around three. Yeah. Um. So we drive into this prison ground and we pull up to this mansion. Uh, that's in like on these prison grounds, and we pull in. The prison's closed, right? No, the prison's is an active prison. Oh, oh, oh okay. It's not like, Sing Sing, so we know it's not Sing Sing. Like the uh, the prisoners are the ones that like do the groundskeeping on the around the house and stuff. And uh, so we we walk into this old, old, huge, old house on prison grounds, and it's it's. I mean, it's a beautiful old house, but something like the only water you can drink is the one is the water that comes out of the kitchen sink because there's a filter on that because all the other water and all the other bathrooms has br- like water, you know, brown water comes out of the faucets. So three o'clock in the morning, three thirty in the morning, we walk into this house, and Tom and his wife and his son end up sleeping in like a bedroom closest to the middle front door of the house. And I'm like left to my own devices. And Tom's like, well, if you want to sleep in here, you can sleep, you know, if you don't mind sleeping on the floor, you can sleep in here with us. But I'm like, I don't know, by that point, I'm like 20, 21. And I feel weird. This is prior to the internet too. So you can't get on (laughs) your phone and start dicking around. I I didn't even know. Just like, I didn't even own a cell phone by that point. Yeah. 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 You were, remember you were starting against him. Like, I don't need a cell phone. Screw you. I didn't get one until we got out of college. And then yeah, you, um, hate, you were like, you got a cell phone. You're an idiot. And I was like, Soda. so I have the, uh, the order is like, just go pick a bedroom and go to sleep. So I tried to pick a bedroom closest to their, where they're sleeping, but it's down. How, the big, ho- how big is this place? It's uh, my rec, my rec one. Sure. 
I didn't go exploring. It was three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I did. I do know I had to go down the hall, past like another kind of almost a front door into like the servants' quarters to find a bedroom close enough. And my recollection, and this could just be me making it up in retrospect, like on a subconscious level, is that it was like a kid's room. And I went and I wanted to like wash my face and my hands because I'd been at like Madison Square Garden. And so I, I didn't want to go find the kitchen. You've so been I, on the train. So I went into like the bed, the bathroom closest to these, to this bedroom and I'm like rinsing my hands off in brown water <laughs> and then like wiping them on my jeans. <laughs> and then I remember I got in, I got on top of the covers of the bed I, and I just lay there with all my clothes on maybe even my shoes. And I just uh, tried really hard to fall asleep. And so when we were watching this, <clears throat> and then I saw the house more, you know, daylight the next day, but we left pretty soon. But seeing this giant house just reminded me of like going into this, uh, it, seeing this giant house in the movie just reminded me about go, this event where I was so scared and so freaked out. <laughs> I, I, I only remember this story because I remember you coming back and telling me about it. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was near Pennsylvania, which doesn't make any sense. But I remember you saying, like, since we were at the time in college and film school, you're like, "We, this is a great location to shoot a movie at. Remember, you were like, maybe we could figure out, yeah. uh, you know, make a plot of a movie that we could shoot in the house. And, um, uh, yeah, that, that sounds very scary. I don't know if I could have done that. How many rooms are you saying was in the place that you had to I don't pick know. a room? It was I quite mean, a bit. I was pretty big. I mean, I probably wasn't yeah. as big as the house that he this lives house. in in this in yeah. the movie but um there's probably only two two floors but it was big enough that there was like a, like I said there was like a servants section of the house yeah. yeah so it sounds like a proper nice house yeah. and uh uh before we leave hunter's story uh he does claim that I guess in when he had this séance the séance led him to where the boys supposedly off-site um, the seance tells him about the, the, the spirit of the deceased boy leads him to human remains where he finds a gold medallion bearing the dead kid's name. So uh, that's the part of the, the, if we left that out of Hunter's story. Um, so that's freaky. I don't know if I would have been able to stay in the house if, if I were you. Well, I sleep in the car? I'll, I'll just sleep in the car, guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to sleep in the car either because, then, you know, this is the movie where you get killed in the car. Um, I recently saw a, um, uh, a a show, and it was one of these shows. Ev evident, I mean, we're, we're taking a sidetrack and putting the car in neutral here, but it seems like I don't really watch a lot of um, TV just looking around and, like, flipping channels. So... Uh, now that we have a lot of time on our hands because we're all self-isolating, I was watching TV one night and making my Legos because I have all these stuff to do. And I was like, I'll make some Legos. So uh, it seems like every suddenly every show now, there's these supernatural shows. I mean, we had Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. I used to watch the Ghost Adventures. The kid was like, come on, spirit. Come on, you're going to hit me or what? Like daring the spirits to hurt him. There was some other show now on one of these networks where it was people reciting scary stories, and then they would do a pretty good, like, um, freaky as hell, uh, very formulaic, because you got to watch the whole show to f watch the whole thing, but just a retelling of a, of a re re uh, reenactment of what happened. And evidently, there is this really famous psychiatric prison. Uh, they don't mention it. They only say in the special, on the, it says the, uh, on the East Coast, 
I researched it, and I forget the name of the darn thing. I think it's called Brookhaven. Uh, uh, but it's this really famous psychiatric prison that's up in uh, New York State, uh, about an hour an hour and a half away from New York City. And it was this huge facility that is... Uh, it, it used to be so big that the, the, the train line would stop there. There was a stop for this place. And there's pictures if you go online. Uh, maybe we could put it as an extra uh, to this cast if we even do extras anymore. And there's pictures where you can see it's a mile long, the corridors and stuff. And there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened at this place. And the place only closed like in the 80s. But there was a point in the 20s where there was it was so cold and the boiler broke down where uh, for some reason they couldn't get Maybe because they, it was so secluded, there were snowstorms. They couldn't get trains there. They had power, but they the the, the boiler died. So like, tw- and I looked it up. There was a story where like twenty or twenty five of the patients froze to death because uh, in a ward because the, the boiler died in this cold nights. So this place is supposedly super haunted. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that it's closed now, and this is a really famous place. It'd be a great movie to, uh, you know, I'm uh, saying this as a recording that we should, you know, write a movie that takes place there because it's so freaking freaky. Um, you know, that, those kind of situations where you're brought to a secluded area, like the Overlook Hotel or something, you know. Or yeah. also, I guess it's just as scary if you have a house that's just right in the middle of nowhere as well. Yeah. Um, so. I thought I'd just think things about, like, uh, you know, we talked about uh, the director, Peter Medic going to the UK to, uh, you know, after leaving Hungary. But uh, apparently he he applied for and really uh, wanted to get a job as the second assistant director on The Haunting, directed by Robert Wise. And he actually Based read off the Shirley Jackson book. Yeah. And he was able to, in, in that application process, read the, that script at the time. So he talks about the only other like when he read the Changeling script. It really scared the crap out of him. And the only other yeah. time that ever happened was when he read the haunting script. So after he read the Changeling script, he really wanted to make the movie because he was genuinely uh, affected by the, by the script. And he had also apparently had uh, lost his brother. His brother had passed away. And um, I think maybe in some way doing this movie was a way to kind of, you know, for lack of a... Yeah, cathartic, lack of a better term, to exercise kind of those demons. And he says a lot of the way he approached the movie was because of uh, the loss he was feeling for his brother and and the way that he kind of felt like, even though he doesn't really believe in ghosts per se, that the way he felt like his brother was around and he could feel his brother's presence in in a weird way. And um, now originally when they... Before the the movie got the name The Changeling, they were working with the title uh, The House on Cheeseman Park, which is... Yeah, going back to our Russell Hunter story. And they had originally hired uh, a director director named Donald Camel, who in 1977 directed a movie called Demon Seed, um, which I think a lot of people our generation, even if you haven't seen it, might recognize the box cover (laughs) from the video store. And apparently... uh, they hired him, but his creative vision for the movie was very different than what Joel Michaels, the producer, kind of envisioned. And so they ended up letting him go, but uh, ended up paying him anyway because he had kind of worked through the pre-production of it quite a bit. So uh, Donald Campbell got left, uh, got let go. Um, and also another director who you see on Wikipedia when you research it, 
as being uh, someone who might have been attached to it is Tony Richards uh, Richardson. But yeah. to, he was never actually hired. He was just there was a number of directors they were considering to direct it. And he was just on that list. But Donald Campbell was actually hired to work on it and then eventually let go. Um, it was made for, uh, from what I've found, $8 million Canadian. Yeah. For which George C. Scott was paid a million. So uh, God bless them. They got their money's <laughs> worth. So they, the big chunk of that, uh, of that pretty modest budget uh, went to George C. Scott. But like you said, money well spent. And uh, it's weird because and then when you go to um, uh, uh, Wikipedia, their budget's uh, $600,000 American, but then the box office is $12 million. So I wonder what, yeah. you know, I, I can't see there's a big disparity between Canadian money and our money. Yeah, of, well, um, according, to the pro- according to Joel Michaels, the producer, it was $8 million. And the, maybe, maybe that was a figure that got somehow confused when somebody put it on Wikipedia because I believe he said the set. Because the house itself, the exterior of the house is actually a facade that they built on top of a house. That's interesting, yeah. Um, and that, uh, so, and and the interior sets are uh, are all on a soundstage. And I think he's, yeah. I think he said that the interior set was half a million dollars. Well, that's what I was going to say. So again, very much like The Shining that comes out the same year where Kubrick builds the facade of the hotel on a back lot. This instead is built on a location. Like you said, it's prefabbed over an existing house to make it more scary looking. And then the interior, like The Shining, the overlook is built on a set. Here, I wonder, you know, we know the story of it's quite incredible to look at Kubrick's overlook and say that, wow, that's a freaking set, how big they are. Uh, I wonder here if, while I had that knowledge of it not being a real uh, house, when you watch the movie, I wonder if they built a three-story set in the soundstage. Because how they shoot it, it kind of all looks connected, especially when you go up the stairs. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if they did, you know, they if they built the uh, music parlor, uh, the study off the front entrance hall where the stairs are, and then when the stairs go up, if they built all that. You know, at to, so you can do one takes. So we can run up the stairs, go around the second floor, and go up to the third floor, and then maybe you break away for your, you know, your different rooms. Yeah. But because it's it's quite a massive, impressive. I mean, when you look at it, it's not a huge mansion. It's just like a real nice manor house, kind of. It's pretty but, big. Um, <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. But then when you, especially and then when you get inside, especially for one person. <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> and then when you get inside and, you know, you do realize that it's probably uh, there's such attention to detail on the sets that you think it's a real house uh, that, you know, the, it does look like that it had servants quarters uh, and, you know, uh, areas where you had servants cooking and stuff. There's great little uh, things like in the kitchen when it's panning over, you see that there's an old stove, like a wood-burning stove or a coal-burning stove that's not used anymore. So instead of ripping that damn thing out, what they do is they just, you know, they have some p- plants on the top of it. And then on, as you pan, you see a, a modern stove, either electric or, or gas, you know. So it's those, those great little details that make you think that it's an actual location as yeah. opposed to, like, something they fabricated. Sure. I mean, if I had to guess that they probably built... The first two floors, ground floor certainly built like so that you could walk through it. Because I mean, basically, yeah. they do almost with a steady cam. A lot of steady cam, yeah. Go through it. 
uh, and then maybe the second floor, and then the stairs to the third floor. Yeah. But probably if they were going to shoot on the third floor, they probably would have just cheated the second floor for the third floor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where the stairs, like he could walk up the stairs and then they'll cut to them just walking up the first set of stairs. Yeah. But they don't really explore that too much. And then, of course, the attic was probably its own set as well. And also, you know, kind of in in, uh, reference to what you, you mentioned about, like, the size of the house. If you look at the house from the outside and then you go to the interior sets, there's got to be. If you're going to look at it like in a realistic reality type way, there's parts of this house that we never saw. We never see. Oh, sure. Because the house. Yeah, we is... don't see half the second floor. Yeah. Because <laughs> the house is humongous from the outside. Uh, yeah. There's there's probably different dining. We never see a dining room or, a, or we see the kitchen, but there's certainly other aspects of the, you know, different bathrooms and the whole second floor. There's probably huge bedrooms we don't see because he's only in one bedroom. But also, he's, you know, he kind of had to build the set that way because so much of the way it's photographed, which is brilliant because it's like yeah. creating a, the house as a character, um, is like we're looking down from down, looking up at uh, George C. Scott inside the house and outside the house. And you would think on a typical soundstage set, there's no ceiling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's where you put the grid up and you put the lights and everything. But especially in the foyer, like we're seeing parts of the house. You, you are seeing pretty high up into the Because, yeah, house. they're shooting so low, <laughs> low angle. That's a really good point now that we're segueing into the actual film. Uh, Finally. The, it's, <laughs> yeah. Well, the nitty gritty, you know what I mean? Six hours in. Uh, where there, there's they got a lot of interesting things going on here. The uh, How they shoot it is really... Uh, crafty and almost subconsciously subversive where um, there's a lot of Steadicam shots, uh, which I would I assume is a Steadicam, which I wonder on multiple viewings, is that maybe supposed to be the house? You know, it's like the boy's ghost coming through and, you know, looking and ha- creeping around that you don't realize. You just think it's just shots of yeah. going, you know, to show off the house. Uh, certainly when the seance and stuff. Yeah, I was going to say certainly, definitely the seance scene. I, I, I would think that's the implication. That's definitely how I read it. I mean, I even got it when the first scene, when you see the uh, the groundskeeper, Mr. Tur- Turtle Tettles, putting, doing stuff. And, you know, he I think he was dusting stuff. And then the Steadicam goes past him, goes into the uh, foyer or the front area where the staircase is, pass into the music room. And you see George C. Scott noodling around on the piano. And that's, I think, the scene where... The, the, the key's not working. He leaves. And then a key, you being a music guy, the key that the, the get, that gets depressed, uh, I don't know if you, you know, is that like the tuning key? You know how everyone's like, play me? Like middle uh, C. You know, when you try to tune something? Yeah. yeah is I, that the... I, I wasn't you know paying I mean? attention enough to see yeah. like what exact note it was. I should have just asked you <laughs> when, we, when we watched it together. Wait, uh, pause it. Is that the... Yeah. What, what, is that a middle... Is that a C? Give me, give me a good country key. Uh... So that's interesting. So I feel like a lot of that is implied that it could be maybe the house or the child or the, the, the ghost, the entity, keeping an eye on him. And it's interesting how they short, shoot George C. Scott. We talked about George C. Scott, um, and I'd like to talk a little more about him in a, a little later on. But even from the beginning of the movie, when the first shot, when you see the fade up and you see this there in upstate New York for this a monumental opening where uh, the first shot you see is the road covered in snow and you see around the bend, 
you know, and you, and it's almost foreshadowing what's going to happen because you see the deserted snow covered highway, the two lane highway, no one's around. And then you just see around the bend and then the camera kind of pans over and you see George C. Scott with his wife and daughter, you know, pushing their station wagon to the side of the road. So the implication is, I guess something happened to the car where it died or some, so, something went wrong. They Maybe the belt blew or something or the radiator. So they find, I mean, and it must be hard for them to be pushing the damn thing into the snow. They find a place to stop it and there's a, there's a phone booth. And as soon as he gets into the, even I guess when he's laughing, when he's pushing, they're joking about them, how far we're going to push the car and all that kind of thing. They start, when they first establish George C. Scott, they're shooting him very low. And that's my point with all this is when then when he gets into the phone booth, my the first memory I have when we watched this movie was how they shot him in the phone booth and his reactions to everything in the phone booth because he was strapped and couldn't get out. And then past that, the rest of the movie, like you're saying, they shoot him very low. And I wonder if that's also a comment on because it's George C. Scott. We're shooting him because he has his gravitas and this immense character that, you know, that's almost part of the intimidation is we're always going to shoot him kind of low and make him very high in stature. I also used a ton of uh, like wide angles within the house. Yeah. But not so much that it's like fisheye, but just enough that it. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of stuff in focus that, uh, you know, a longer lens wouldn't put in focus and maybe just gives that a slight distortion along the edges that just creates a very subtle but interesting atmosphere for the film. I mean, the it's way like it's like they're showing the whole thing off. Yeah. But it's also like it's showing, you know, from a from a storytelling standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, it's you're showing it to us because it's like the house is either a character itself or they're making a statement that like the ghosts, the spirit is here. You know, they're showing us the the environment because, of course, in every film, you know, there's a there's a little bit of a. um an effort to establish an environment for a character so that the audience isn't always thinking about like, wait, where are they within the room and getting taken out of the movie. So initially there's a little bit of that, like just showing us where in relation the piano is to the other rooms. There's a lot lot of of film language that, you know, the common moviegoer is never, never examines or explores because there's no reason to. But when yeah. you're making films, there's all these things you do kind of have a st- have to establish because you never want your audience to get taken out of the story to wonder like, wait, where is he standing? What's he looking at? <laughs> yeah, you get totally lost. They're going to get they're going to fall out of the story and try to figure out what's going on. But in this case, Technically. There's, def- there's definitely put there's definitely that. But there's also just this some of it I feel like is just to establish like the one, the enormity of the, of the house, but also, like I said, like he's, it's like the close up of the opposing character almost, you know, yeah. it's like when you cut to George C. Scott, you know, you cut back to the piano. Like it's, you know, like, you know, like in Christine, we talk about how George, Car- John Carpenter had to establish Christine, a card, in, like a inanimate object in terms of, you know, life. Uh, as a as a character itself, the house is definitely its own character in this. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I w- I wanted to ask you because I don't know how I feel about it from this viewing, but do you feel the relation to the ball? Do you feel like there's ever a moment within the 
film when uh, John Russell, the George C. Scott, Scott character, is hoping or thinking that it might be his daughter that's communicating with that's, him? That's a good question because we establish in our uh, Russell Hunter story what the movie's based on is that he discovers the ball and the ball is the boys who lived up in the attic where yeah. in the George C. Scott movie, um, when he goes back to the apartment... Uh, in New York City, when you come in and it's an empty apartment, he's moving out to leave and he's packing everything up. Uh, and the maid is still there, who's a woman who I recognize too and from some other movies and stuff. Uh, there's this great shot where it's empty, cause, so he's leaving, and then the ball drops, and suddenly you're back in the apartment fully furnished. And that must have been a headache just to get that shot, where it's a completely furnished apartment, and uh, it's his daughter running into the room and bouncing the ball saying, hey, look, daddy, or I forget what she says. And then it cuts, it's a memory and it cuts back to George C. Scott seeing the maid accidentally drop the ball out of a box that they're moving. And it's it's very poetic, but he takes that ball and brings it with him to Seattle. And uh, then later on, he brings that up to, um, to what's her name? Uh, the, the, the lead in the movie, his wife in real life, he says, that was my daughter's ball. So I, I there, and then when he then it's interesting. Then he decides to throw that ball away. Uh, that's almost a, quite a uh, interesting character decision because you think that's so much invested in the memory of that his family and all that kind of a thing. And then he throws it away and it comes back. You know, then that's the big reveal when he gets home and the ball's coming back down the stairs again. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's if that's supposed to imply that he's hoping maybe he's gonna come in contact with. Uh, his family, or if he if if there's any implication at the beginning that he thinks it's his his family trying to reach out from yeah. beyond the grave. I mean, I guess um, I guess the uh, it's an I guess the implication of the fact that he throws the ball away might be that he doesn't want whatever he thinks is in the house to be using his daughter to get to him. Maybe. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a low blow to be using something so like uh meaningful to him in such a way to fuck with him uh no you can't and, and like you said th this is the era where it's like you know uh in the 70s where it's it seems like there's a um there's a it's like how the film is photographed the stock of film it's on it's very of its era um where they were trying to go for it looking very realistic, like they're setting, shooting in real locations, not on sets. So like the exterior, to me, it had that look, the natural light of the 70s and 80s, that kind of, you know, like you said, almost soap opera kind of a, a TV movie kind of a feel. Yeah. Where they were trying to emphasize that this is a real set, real locations, uh, you know, using natural light as much as possible. You know, so it has that look then of the late 70s, 80s. Now, since we're talking about the ball, I know the audience can't see it, but uh, we won't spend much time on it. But I do have something I want to show and tell. I wanted to show Dion. Oh my gosh! You, you just <laughs> took out of your sleeping bag a ball that looks identical. I found to the this ball in the movie, bouncing down the stairs of that house. Oh my uh, gosh! That I stayed in. <laughs> no, if you twenty years ago, <laughs> the uh, if you bought the Severin like special, super special deluxe, you know, money out your ass edition of the Changeling. When that Blu-ray came wow. out, it, it came with uh, that ball, a ball that was uh, the ball that, that looks, says Severin on it. It says, <laughs> says yeah. Severin and that says the Changeling with the white stripe. It looks just like the rubber ball. So, and it's a rubber ball, right? It's not yeah, like plastic. It's right. I don't want to start yeah. bouncing around your parents' yeah. basement. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? You broke the doing? TV, Dion. <laughs> 
uh, Jesus Christ. Um, so we we end up seeing that um, uh, you know he he moves into the house and uh, well the opening of the movie he I guess supposedly. Um, what's his face wanted to have a different opening in the movie. He wanted to have the first five minutes be George C. Scott playing the piano, uh, playing some sort of piece on the piano, and then the camera moving like almost through the piano. Uh, there's a great Tim Roth movie uh, by that Italian director whose name escapes me, who did um, uh, uh, El Postino and, and that other one, but it's called Legend of 1900, and it's about Tim Roth being a piano player on a on a. Uh, ocean liner and there's a lot of gimmicky stuff where they do where they have the camera go through the piano and out while he's playing and stuff like that and i guess that was the director's intention he wanted to do this shot where georgie e. scott's playing the camera goes through the piano sees the strings comes out comes around again goes back through but i guess they kind of nix that idea because no you want to have an opening that kind of grabs the audience and takes them in and shocks them and that would be too much of a gimmick to do and who knows how expensive that would be back then practically in 1979 to actually try to film that um yeah but instead you have this horrific opening sure yeah and then of course you know i love seeing uh new york city even for just a few shots back you know yeah like a time capsule because i used to live um my old apartment used to be pretty close to Lincoln Center and that's where I would always go to the movies was up up towards Lincoln Center and that's actually probably Lincoln Center is honestly probably one of my favorite places in the city um like I would just go there and when you first see him walk you know past like the there's a little like pool thing and a sculpture like that's kind of off to the side and there's benches over there and I would sometimes just go over there and sit there and just like hang out by Juilliard there yeah hang out with a cup of coffee and then of course there's the stairs and you see Juilliard which looks exactly like it does now except for they put some lights with like words and stuff in within the embedded into the steps but then he goes and you see him and they get across you see from across the street and in the movie because I always wondered what was on that corner and apparently it was a place called O'Neill's because now it's PG oh yeah the Oh, that's PJ Clark's. That's where PJ Clark's is. So that's where, like, oh, that's hilarious. Mike Vanderbilt, who gets uh, brought up on the show uh, when he came and to sleep over and do uh, Blues Brothers and Halloween with us, he and I went there one night to to have dinner. So that's uh, PJ Clark's is someplace I frequent quite often on that corner. So it was really cool to see that corner back in 1979, 1980. And you see. George C. Scott, like he, you know, he's he's crossing the street against traffic, which is cool. You know, he kind of hurries across <laughs> on a rainy, on a you know, a gray day in New York, and that whole opening sequence of, I mean, so you have this horrible accident that happens so quickly, and like you said, uh, Gene, what's her face, Gene uh, Hirsch, Marsh, uh, Marsh? from um, Marsh, yeah, Marsh. from Willow and um, and Return to Oz, uh. Uh, and she's English in it, and and you know, the, and you see, I mean, even if you read into the backstory, the daughter looks like she's about ten years old. I would say, uh, she's graying, Jean's graying, George C. Scott's his age, so it even makes you think that they had a child later in life. They didn't have a child like in their twenties. So, you know, the, it uh, it's it's upstate New York, and they said something about um, 
oh, what did they say? They say something about Thanksgiving. So I'm thinking maybe it was this Thanksgiving weekend or the Thanksgiving break because then she's like, this is the last holiday. I'm going to go on with you when they're pushing the car. He stops to go into the phone booth to call for roadside assistance and you have this dump truck coming around the bend and this other car coming down the road and because it's slippery, the car comes down the road, loses control and the dump truck swerves not to hit that car and plows into their station wagon and kills the wife and daughter right in front of Georgie Scott and he can't get out of the phone booth in time and then that's his reaction to that is then when you great 70s, 80s, you have then the title card come up, the changeling over that. You know, and then everything just fades to black, you know, and it, it's such a powerful opening. Um, and you have, you know, George C. E. Scott see that and you can only imagine what, ha- you know, when, when we fade to black, George C. E. Scott getting out of the phone booth, being, you know, what state he's in to run across the, sh- the road and the other people there, you know, who are, or, and then, you know, his wife has been, you know, they've been run over by the yeah. station wagon. Well, they're under the station you know. wagon at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you, so you just think of like, what I was saying earlier, six hours ago, you just think of like, he probably lost his shit and, you know, cracked right then. And who knows how, uh, you know, uh, inconsolable and just hysterical he was at that time. And then it cuts to uh, four or five months later where he, like we said, he's leaving Juilliard. So in that time frame, he ends up saying in the following scenes, he had to just say to himself, they're gone, they're gone. You have to put challenges up in your life to, 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 to move forward. So he, we lose, they kind of only uh, hint at what he must have gone through to now to be at that point now where then he's leaving. And then I was wondering, do you think he's selling the apartment or he's just going to sublet it? And he's, is he totally moving away? Like none of these questions were ever answered. If he's just getting away to go to Seattle to teach for a semester or, or is he just going to start a whole new life across the country farthest away, you know? I mean, I guess I never really thought about like what he's doing with the apartment, other like that, than bro. other than moving <laughs> out of it. Um, yeah, but I, I do think for me, I've I've always read it as to that he's running, like he can't live in the place that he lived with them. Yeah, and you know, in the context of the movie, I mean, of course, they wanted to shoot in Vancouver, so you know, from a logistical standpoint, they set it in Seattle, but from like yeah. a narrative dramatic standpoint. Like, it really is on the other side of the country. I mean, it is kind sure. of as far as you can get away from his New York City apartment and still be in, like, northern America. So Yeah. <laughs> so I And mean, it's I, great because Seattle wasn't a very photographed city at the time. I mean, um, the Eastwood talked about wanting to maybe do Dirty Harry there for a minute because Seattle wasn't really sh- – not a lot of movies took that much place there. There's that John Wayne really good movie, McHugh which is also kind of a cop movie. I think it's like 73 or 74 that takes place in Seattle. So it's brilliant that they do shoot a lot of shots in Seattle at SeaTac Airport and uh, around. And then when you see uh, uh, Melvin Douglas, his character, when he's in his building, there's those beautiful skylines of the of the Seattle needle and, and yeah. everything, you know. Uh, so they really utilize in this movie locations very well, you know, to set it in realistic confines. Yeah. And uh, the, that cemetery, there's a cemetery in the movie that's in Seattle. And then also yeah, when they uh, go look up the bodies um, and the like historical society's office, which is in that like flat iron esque, like triangular building. That's that's in yeah. Seattle also. Um, 
and then the rest they have a little outside area yeah. where they're outside which is very cool yeah. location <laughs> very yeah. and then how they shot it it's cool because you see the two streets looking either way and yeah. you can tell it's an actual location very you're very european looking actually in, in a weird way yeah actually i think that's i might be wrong that might be in vancouver but still it's still a very cool location uh um, yeah and uh there's like a there's like a restaurant scene later in the movie, which is actually the ground floor of that building. I mean, we see it from the inside and you can see that the, you know, there's like glass doors or something that go to the outside that are open for the diners to almost feel like they're sitting outside. Um, but that's actually the ground floor of that, that very cool yeah. uh, triangular building. So yeah, totally great use of establishing Seattle with exteriors, but also a great use of just picking really visual visually interesting yeah. locations to, to well like, maybe when he gets goes to the university and he's walking around i get he gets that interview it looked very much like our alma mater purchase college because it had that look of I, and i don't know where that is supposed to be where he's teaching uh but it has that university look of the 60s and 70s yeah yeah you know very, uh, almost kind of mirrors modern mirrors that lincoln center shot yeah from yeah so it's like it's almost like he's he's uprooted but not yeah, far going to the same place <laughs> you know it's you know, almost like so, it's a mirror image yeah so then he gets situated and he's staying over his friend's house who we said was the gentleman who's from uh who played obi-wan in this the star wars radio show uh and they get him a job i think he has an interview at the university but then they hook him up with the they have a friend who's part of the seattle historical society and they say oh they you know they do rent houses out that are that they have just lying around and uh, they do a great job of establishing his character because then the ne- that next scene where he's um, he goes to teach his first class and we realize how well esteemed he is, which I think is a great other device where he's in a kind of a big music hall yeah. and uh, you know he makes the jokes about there's only what thirty people registered in the class, but it looks like there's maybe you know fifty or hundred people. Uh, to see his first lecture on uh, advanced musical theory and composition or whatever the heck it was. And then he said, he makes the joke like, it's not raining out, you know, so you're all here. And he'll see, he said like, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, how many of you actually stay, you know? And then he sits down and he start now again, showing my ignorance of classical music. He sits down, and he starts playing a piece. Is that to indicate that he's playing a piece that's everyone knows and loves of I, his own, or is he playing like a, a a very famous classical piece that I don't know the name of? Yeah, then the I next shot is that maybe them going to the opera. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I don't know the piece either. So, uh, yeah, so our 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 classical music ignorance is is showing, but it's definitely an established piece because we see that piece then full fledged orchestra at the theater yeah, in the, the very yeah, next yeah. scene. Um, yeah, which and they cut it perfectly. So his piano playing it, and then it cuts to the very end, and it's again uh, establishing like it's the real world where it's a uh, you know a full orchestra playing it with a with a conductor at the very end of a, a big long piece, and then yeah, dun, yeah. dun dun and then there's a big ovation, and then we establish uh, the historical society character uh, um, uh, Trish uh, uh, Vanderveer meeting her mother and her mother, and then we are introduced to the Melvin Douglas senator character. Uh, uh, Melvin Douglas, a phenomenal actor who was uh, uh, just hit 80 at that point. He goes on to do Ghost Story, another great movie that we brought up uh, in the next year. And then he dies in 81. He was married to a woman named Helen who he had met 50 years before on a play in Broadway at the, you know, the Blasco Theater over there. Yeah. 
They did a play together there. He met his wife at that play. They married. They were together 50 years, and she ended up passing away in 1980, the year this comes out. And then he does this movie. He does um, Ghost Story, and then he ends up passing away in 81. But he's a great, you know... uh, elderly actor who's phenomenal in yeah, this movie I mean, his career then, his career started in the 1930s i mean it's a yeah. lot of movies that even i you know uh, even like we probably don't know but um you know things that we might know like he's in hud he's in uh polanski's Paul the Ten- Newman, yeah he's in the uh yeah. polanski's the tenant uh so later in life, he starts being in things that, you know, I think are more familiar to. Uh, and a like, crap load of um, uh, TV looks look like 50s New York City TV uh, live action, like, you know, Playhouse 90 and Studio One, those kind of, you know, uh, those live plays that they would air, you know, that a lot, for the most part, a lot of those are now lo- lost to us because they didn't keep the tapes. Yeah. Um, but I think he does a great job in this. And again, it's, it's ca- talking about George C. Scott, his age. This gentleman's only eighty, but he looks to me so much older. In in the in, you know, uh, yeah. And now he can start unraveling his character. He ends up being for those who haven't seen the movie and have decided to listen to this without hearing it. So another spoiler: he ends up being the person that we're, is is the changeling for the yeah for what's revealed in the attic. Um, so my question to you as a viewer is: Do you think he knew? Or do you well, think he didn't you know, know? I think that's interesting because what we learn when we cut to the end is that, you know, he was he was adopted six years old as an orphan and then replaced, he's the changeling, replaces the child who ends up being murdered in the movie and then goes to goes to school, comes back after World War One eighteen, and then his affliction is fixed and no one questions it. I don't know. I think I my first viewing of this movie was that he's also more of a victim in this because in any he doesn't seem malicious. A lot of these movies will set it up that the the person's an evil senator or an evil evil governor. And in this movie he seems like a, an elderly guy who's had this really legendary statehood in the Seattle area. And uh, you know, he's giving a speech after the opera or after the classical music performance we're talking about. So it looks like he kind of put it on or whatever or presented it. So uh, when George C. Scott at the end of the movie comes to him with these revelations and then shows him the piece, the gold medallion that he's found, uh, I don't know if, I think it's just, to, I remember my reaction being that it was just surprising to him as it was, because it's almost like you feel bad for him when he starts breaking down and he's yeah. like, how dare you, yeah. you know, um, criticize or, or, or say these terrible things to my, about my father. My father was a great man. And, you know, you kind of feel bad, like, oh, my God. You know, it's funny because I was looking the other side of this. A lot of this could be, you know, Jesus, George C. Scott could be interpreted that he's really shaking down this guy, like the guy says. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then at the end of the movie, the, the, the movie looks like it could be complete arson that George C. Scott, because he's like, wait in the car, and he goes inside. <laughs> then the place burns down, and no one, you know, mentions yeah. it to him. So this could be this elaborate hoax on George C. Scott's part that we end up finding out, like, you know, 30 years later that he concocted the whole thing uh either for you know uh just the fame or the 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 notoriety or to to shake the senator down yeah Um, i kind of felt um, uh what yeah what's your take on it at least i don't know how i felt in previous viewings because i have the mind of a goldfish and i forget everything (laughs) instantly as do i (laughs) but uh in this viewing I, i i got the for me my interpretation was that he probably knew on some level that something wasn't right. 
Oh, so it's I got that kind of where it was like he was even lying to himself. Yeah. So he might have had memories of a childhood that he can't place, but there maybe he's forgotten that. Yeah. And and so it's not like it's not like he was implicit in what happened. Yeah. But it's like he or, knows deep down too that that what George yeah. is sa- saying is right, but he's also almost saying that to himself. Yeah, like, yeah. no, fuck you. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I don't even know. And I don't even. I don't even assume <clears throat> or or get that that he's covering that he's trying to cover it up in his old age, but that something in him has always probably said there's something not right about this. Well, you we know. get that impression because. Um, when he, when Georgie Scott's at that location of the Seattle Historical Society, we have that secretary say something about him, like you know the papers were pushed through. You shouldn't be living there. That house doesn't want occupants. And Georgie Scott's like, "What are you talking about?" And then she leaves. He's like, "Oh well, I'll just finish my cigarette out here." Um, and then the next scene is like, uh, you know, instead of being like, "Wait, wait, 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 hold on a minute," what, what the fuck are you mean? saying? It's just like he's like, "Yeah," he's just like, "Oh well." That's a weird okay. way to put um, it. <laughs> yeah, n- nice to meet you too. <laughs> I'm Russell, by the way. Um, he ends up, uh, the next scene is that woman calling the Senator and saying they were here. They were looking yeah. into, uh, so that does give you a sense of maliciousness True. where she's, the secretary is completely culpable as well. And has been trying to keep people from nosing around. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe they do know there's something going on with the house and they don't want, I, you know, you don't know because yeah. there's no plans to demolish the house. It would be interesting if, I guess a sub subplot would be that the senator's trying to buy the house away from the historical society just to level it. And then you realize it's because he's trying to hide the secrets of everything. But we don't have that. It's just that they don't want anybody to dig around. But like you, like the, his his breaking down about like, you can't talk about my father was a great man. Like you can't talk about Very him. great scene. Yeah. I mean, it feels very genuine. And, and uh, yeah. So even though there is this idea like of you're making that. this old man cry <laughs> it's like stop it <laughs> well i think that's what georgie scott's like uh, maybe i took this a little too far yeah, he's like, i'm sorry your I'm father was here. a cocksucker but i'm sorry Here's so all I, this. oh then yeah he, and he leaves everything he's like i'm not because that's a great scene too where the guy's like how much do you want to go yeah. away and he's like i don't want and then so he leaves this is the only copy he leaves all this shit you know you 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 figure and then he leaves the i wouldn't have left the medallion but he leaves the medallion too yeah so i mean i you guess know. for me even though there is all these hints that like he knows something because of the house or whatnot. I do get the sense because he's because Melvin Douglas is so good in that scene that for yeah. me, I read it as like he knows there's something weird about his childhood and he's probably always suspected there was something weird. But like you said, it's almost like lied to himself all these years. And now yeah. this is kind of proof. And it also brings up that scene, the ending of the movie, also kind of brings another element of what I was saying six hours ago, which is like one of the reasons why I wanted to show it in class is because it has all these great moments of what you expected a quintessential haunted house movie. It's like, there's even like astral projection in this movie, (laughs) you know, like he's still in his penthouse office or whatever, but then he's also at the, at the house. That's yeah. That's a weird, we can, when we wrap this up, we should probably go over, uh, I, I, uh, of that, because that's kind of quite quite insane. Um, 
the definition of a changeling. Now, it's interesting that the last movie we just did, Darby O'Gill and the Little People on the podcast, we actually, in that movie, a changeling is mentioned because when King Bryant is yelling at Darby to let him go, he's saying, if you don't let me go, this is going to happen. This is gonna, and he says, and changelings are going to be, ended up in babies' cribs you know, like you haven't dreamed of. The definition of a changeling for people to understand what this means is it's a, Usually, it's a creature found in European folklore and folk religion, typically typically described as an offspring of a fairy, troll, elf, or other legendary creature that has been secretly left in a place of a human child. Now, I don't know if traditionally when a, ch- a changing happens, if it's because of um, they're stealing the kid to like eat the kid or something, or if it's going to be like a ransom, you know, you're putting a, a child in its place to do some devious thing. Um, I feel like I saw a a show or a movie recently where there was a changeling. Does this ring a bell to you? Did you see anything kind of like a horror movie or a show recently in the past couple of years where there was a changeling where they, they swapped the kid and the kid wasn't who it was supposed to be. You know, now that you're saying it, it does kind of ring a bell. I mean, I know there's that Clint Eastwood movie changeling, but I never saw that. Which is actually, that's actually quite good. It's a true story with Angelina Jolie about a serial killer. And, uh, that's a movie about takes place in the twenties and that's a crazy movie in a sense, just quickly, because it's about, she's a, uh, uh she works in a telephone company and her son or her child is kidnapped. And we, spoiler alert, we come to find out that it's kidnapped by a serial killer. And this all actually really happened. And the only reason the screenwriter got it was because it was one of those things where one day, um, I forget where the movie takes place, maybe in L.A., they were just getting rid of all those files. It's one of those stories where they were purging their old documents and somebody who knew the screenwriter said, hey, you better come in here and go look at this stuff because there's a lot of stuff they're throwing away of unsolved cases that you know you might be able to find as a good story. He went down, grabbed the stuff, and in that stuff was this story about this serial killer who was stealing kids and killing them, I think on his farm in the rooster uh, pen or in the in the barn it's very freaky because there was a setting on the uh, Eastwood DVD when you can watch the movie and you could do a split screen or something where you can hit a button and you could see their set and then you could see the actual crime photos of the sets that were you know where the stuff actually happened so but the whole point of that is that you know that that I I don't think a kid was put in her in the place but the kid was taken you know and she's trying to find out, find her child, and she uncovers all this stuff. But I used to get that confused. I was like, "Oh, you know, is this a remake of this movie?" But it, you know, it's just the idea of a of the changeling. But in this film, for our context, it's because the the kid is swapped. It's a changeling because the kid is adopted and put in its place. Yeah, but you're right. There was something somewhat recently that involved the changeling. I can't remember. What I feel it like was, there was. Though. Well, I have a goldfish mind too because of all the drugs and all that stuff and, <laughs> and drinking and you know for all the medicinal purposes. So I can't remember anything anymore. But I do feel like in the past couple of years there was something on that there was a changeling or something and they they figured it out and I don't know. I see. I don't know. Um, quickly, I guess we could roll over George C. Scott. What I wanted to say, I absolutely love George C. Scott. He has an interesting career because he first um, he wanted to be a writer. Uh, a journalist, and uh, he said, you know, when he was little, he had a typewriter he would just go, go at, and he went to college. I think he tried to go to journalism school, and he just didn't feel like he could hack it, and then he just happened to go into a play, and he liked it enough that he just started to pursue doing acting, and his breakout role was in 1957 doing Richard III, and then from then on, he just earned a living uh, as an actor. Uh, he's 
I think one of his first movies is um, uh, The Hanging Tree, a very good Western. Uh, and then the next role is Anatomy for a Murder, where he plays the prosecutor. A phenomenal performance where uh, earned him a, uh, a supporting uh, acting credit. Then he goes on to do, um, you know, like The Hustler, uh, Ray, a lot of stuff, uh, Patulia, which is a very famous movie of his. Um, but he ends up getting this this uh, uh, bravado about him that, that he's a legendary drinker and a brawlster. He's had his nose broke five times, four because of a fight. The fifth is because of a, in a mugging. So that's why he has that kind of weird nose. Uh, and he was in his career... It was going for him playing villains, the heavy roles, until he, in the 60s, lucky enough, started doing comedic roles. And he did Dr. Strangelove, and that kind of got him out of being pigeonholed as playing those heavies uh, in movies and stuff like that. And then when he's offered Patton in the late 60s, it was a very kind of people at the era we talk about because of the Vietnam War and all that, people didn't really want to do a movie where it was kind of pro-military or pro a guy like that. So I think they approached Rod Staggart. He had said no. They approached Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas didn't want to do it. So it was um, George C. Scott who took the role. And then, again, I think he won the Oscar for that. But he never he never wanted to go to the Oscars because he said, listen, I'm awarded stuff all the time. But he hated the commercialization and what they were using and all the kind of you know um, circles jerking that would happen. And it's funny because... Can you only imagine what happened now with all these award ceremonies? You know, he would hate it. But even back then, he was saying, no, I don't want to be part of any of that. But he was a guy that suffered from extreme bouts of depression. He drank a lot. And I think the idea was with him, sadly, is that he was terribly uncomfortable for what, with what he did for a living. And that's a lot of times you see with actors where I think he really thought of it at the end of the day that acting wasn't a very serious job. And because... He was making a living and not having a quote-unquote real job. He was embarrassed by that. And that was where I think, um, you know, from what I've read, maybe where some of the, the alcoholism and the depression came from, that, you know, he fought these demons. He was married five times, uh, twice to the same woman. And then there's a movie, I think it's called The Rundown, from the early 70s he's in, where he's with um, his present wife and he meets in the movie Trish Van Vanderveer's in and I might that might be the movie they meet on and then he marries her and she is his fifth wife and she they're married in the early 70s and they're married till he dies in 99 but they do I think six six or eight movies together and this is one of the movies they do is The Changeling and she plays into the historical society person so he had a fascinating life um and uh you know he even he tried to do a lot of stuff his own way you know he tried to to that movie Rage that I always bring up. He directed that. He stars in that. Uh, there's another movie, which I forget the name of, where he directed, starred, and he tried to distribute himself. So he always tried to do things his own way, but it's just amazing to me how old he looks in these. He's only in his early 50s in this movie, but he just looks so old to me. It's just, it's, 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 he's, and then, you know, he's always that, he's always smoking. You know, he's always that, you know, you know. So uh, I love him. I love him to death. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always kind of had a soft spot, um, maybe partially hardcore. Yeah, well, hard. I mean, I didn't discover hardcore until you know with the last ten, fifteen years or something when you know we we started talking about it, and um, maybe partially because I remember this from a kid, and like you said, Firestarter, 
Uh, that was huge when we were little. Yeah. And then uh, Exorcist 3 has always been a very special movie to me. <laughs> and he's phenomenal in that movie. He's so great. And, you know, at some point. Well, you we'll, turned me on to that. At some point, we'll, we'll have to do that movie because uh, yeah. there's a lot of interesting things to talk about in that movie. But, uh, yeah, I love him. And what year I, is that? 90, maybe. 90, okay, yeah, that maybe sounds 92 right. 92 or 93. Yeah. It's definitely early 90s. Um, and then I've always felt for me as, as much as people love Peter Sellers and as great as Peter Sellers is, I've always thought he stole the show in Dr. Oh, Strange Dr. Strange Love. <laughs> it's so subversive. I actually, I hadn't watched Dr. Strange Love for Jesus, uh, 15 or so years. It was one of those movies I would put on at the video store. So I had this special edition and I just watched it for my birthday again to rewatch it. And it's just... He's so good. There's such like at the end of the movie when he's saying his big speech before Peter Sellers gets up and says, you know, mind fear, I can walk. Like there's like you have Keenan Wynn where he's like um, um, he's saying like, you know, you have three versions. They, they pronounce things wrong, you know, and George C. Scott's like, we can't be naive about this, you know, when he's supposed to be saying naive. But there's such little stuff that you kind of gloss over. You don't realize where he's he's so good. I mean, his reactions and that's a legendary story where, you know. He didn't want to play it that wacky, but uh, Kubrick would say, give me a third performance. Give me the one, an out-of-the-way out nutty performance, and that would be the performance that Kubrick would always use, that crazy off-the-wall performance. Um, and he was, and I wonder, you know, if, if it was one of these things where he didn't find, he always challenged himself because he maybe he didn't, since he didn't see himself as an intellectual, he always wanted to kind of be an intellectual, George C. Scott, so he had this fascination with playing chess, and they talk about behind the scenes in Dr. Strangelove where people were so worried to work with him uh, that they didn't know how to handle him. And Kubrick said, you know, I, I, he figured it out. We'll just put a chessboard on the on set. So they would play chess and George C. Scott would be sitting there for hours trying to figure a move out. And then Kubrick would walk by and make another move and then it'd be back to George C. trying to figure it out, which I don't want to try to diminish him because I do think he's a brilliant guy, George yeah. e. Scott, and stuff like that, you know. But he had this fat, and then they talk about even on set here where he was playing chess, he was playing himself on set in the Changeling. Yeah, you know. Peter Medic talks about uh, how the, you know, because I guess George e. Scott had a bit of a reputation to be difficult to work with, mm. and they he talks about how they had a great time working with him. The, the only time he really, um, although he hints at it in other spots, but. Uh, for the most part, they say that they loved working with him and they didn't have any real issues and it was a lifelong friendship after that. But uh, he said the one time he really blew up was he was playing uh, in his chess in his trailer. And when he says he's playing by himself, I'm wondering if he's playing a computerized version. Because oh, by that time? Because something happens and they accidentally... I got the sense that he's talking about they accidentally unplugged something. And he lost. He's playing the McCready chess game in, 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 you know, and, from the thing. You know, he's playing and, that computer. And uh, he lost his game. Or maybe they moved the trailer and it ended up changing the pieces. But that was the only time he said he blew up. He came out and he started yelling at the crew. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> because because he was in the middle of a chess game and it got screwed up somehow. Yeah. And that was the thing is everyone was so worried because he was a brawler, because he was a fighter, because he was a drinker. There's other stories where they were, you know, a female actress was doing stuff on Broadway with him and uh, she was so they were doing Plaza Suite together. And the director was Mike Nichols. And I forget the, the lead's name, the actress, but she went to Mike Nichols, the director, and said, I'm really scared of 
George. I don't know what to, what do I do? And then the director, Mike Nichols, is like, we're all scared of him. So I don't know why he had this legendary, because he comes off as like, he'll beat the shit out of you, you know, if you know, but, but, but he comes off to me like a guy I want to, like him and, I was thinking like me and Blake used to have this idea of driving places with famous people, you know, in the car. And I would, I would love to be, take a road trip with him and Robert Mitchum in the car, just with the <laughs> two cartons of cigarettes. And we're just, you know, hanging out, talking about, and then we're, you know, we're having to worry about at night when we stop at the roadhouses about them getting into bar fights with people, you know, I mean, he has such this legendariness about him and, uh, you know, I just think he's brilliant with the, the, the you know, um, I mean, he was so hard on himself where they even say he was, he didn't even like his portrayal in Patton. He didn't think he hit the mark quite right, even though he got an Oscar for it. And it became such a famous thing where they were lampooning it for years on end because it was so famous. Um, but I just, you know, and then he did a lot of Broadway. He did a lot of theater. He did a lot of stuff himself. So he was challenging. He came out of that world and he was challenging himself. And he used to say that, like, you know, it's hard to sit here and act for a lens where you know you want to see if you're you're good at anything, go and do it in front of a real audience and see if you get the reaction from a real audience. If they laugh, yeah. they cry, or whatever, then you'll know your skill is good. And that's the era, you know. He's coming out of the '50s, so that's the Jack Lemmon, the Christopher Plummer, all those guys who are coming out of New York, you know, sure. going to those uh, acting houses to learn. So anyway, uh, uh, moving a, past a part George of the, C. Yeah, part of the movie that I would, I think, at least you know, it doesn't need an in-depth discussion, but. <clears throat> um, being a guy who spends most of his time kind of uh, uh, thinking about and writing about and talking to people about s- horror scores. <laughs> I think, uh, yes. I think the music is worth noting because it plays such an important part of this movie in that, that in that he's a musician. Yeah. But uh, also that uh, there's a very interesting element that the minute that he walks, that he enters the house, he starts working on a piece of music, and then oh yes, he discovers that that piece of music is what's in the the music box that's upstairs, hidden away in the attic. So that obviously uh, is a very powerful narrative device, which I feel like has been mimicked at other movies now. You know that that's happened before, where I feel like somebody oh you know like that's even like Stir of Echoes where. Kevin Bacon is trying to noodle around on the guitar, trying to figure out what it is, and he realizes he's playing, uh, what is it, Paint It Black. Sure. And that's the, the, the song the girl's hearing when she's murdered on yeah. the radio. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's a great device. Yeah, but also just music boxes in general were Eerie. very, very big in certain aspects of horror uh, back in the 70s because, like, Burnt yeah. Offerings has some music boxes and uh, yeah, it's just a lot of stuff, but... Uh, I, I, Does the haunting have a music box too? Does yeah, the, don't, isn't there some sort of yeah? There might. I, be. I forget now. You know. But uh, one of the things I wish I could find more information about the score itself because when you hear, if you look on Wikipedia, it says that the school the music was by uh, a composer named Rick Wilkins. But uh, there's a featurette on the Blu-ray with, and they refer to him as a, a music arranger named Ken Wahlberg. And, but when you listen to medic, Peter medic and Joel Michaels talk about it, they talk about the music being by Ken Wahlberg. Um, now the music box theme that we were talking about was actually written by a guy named Howard Blake, who Peter medic had worked on, uh, something before because they needed that before they shot the movie. 
because it plays a very important narrative point of the movie. So they actually needed someone to compose a piece of music that would be the piece of music that George C. Scott is working on within the context of the movie. So if you buy the soundtrack, there was a two-disc limited edition CD that came out a few years ago or that... Uh, but even the single disc versions, they build the the score by Rick Wilkins, uh, Ken Wahlberg, and Howard Blake. And other than having a pretty good understanding that Howard Blake wrote the the music box theme, that uh, then gets worked into the movie in other ways, other than just a, of a diegetic device and within the movie. I don't get it. I can't get a sense of like what Rick Wilkins did. <laughs> On the movie. Yeah. Um, Ken Wahlberg, though, is a uh, Wahlberg is uh, a really fascinating guy. And I would love to talk to him because he also, even though he did compose music for movies, he was mostly known in the in the film industry as a music editor. And he was John Williams's music editor throughout the 70s and 80s, even up until more recent stuff. So. He's he's worked on some fascinating projects and some amazing movies by some amazing composers, but not as a composer, but working in the post production with the composer on, on the uh, on the music itself. But yeah, I just I wish I mean the CD I have it doesn't have of it ha- doesn't have any liner notes, so I don't I can't find a sense of like how what was how that that workload was distributed between. Rick Wilkins and Ken Wahlberg by the fact that he's often referred to as like the arranger. It makes me think that maybe um, he maybe was given the job of taking Howard Blake's music theme, music box theme, and then rearranging it for the orchestra to work throughout the movie in that sense Um, where like he didn't write that theme, but he's the one that created the musical arrangement that, gets performed by the orchestra. I don't know. It's also just, that it's a beautiful score. Um, yeah. And I will continue to see if I could figure out how that, <laughs> what that, uh, what that, uh, that distribution of work, that what that workload was for, the, for those guys. But um, it's a, it's a great score and uh, plays a really important part in the movie and, and is uh, beautifully executed. It's another startling revelation of that when he finds out that what he's been trying to come up with, he comes up with this, and he's what does he say? It's the same key. It's the same melody. It's the same. You know, when he plays later on, he's. And I mean, I would be like, "What the fuck? I've been wasting all my time." <laughs> yeah. Jesus. You know. But it's also you know it's it's atypical for a lot of horror scores, but also typical of a lot of a lot of horror scores in that there is some like eerie musical ambience that happens, and it sounds like maybe there's some voices or breathing that happens within the musical score. But as we referred to earlier, it's not a movie that relies on the shock scare or the big musical hit. So there's elements of the score that just aren't typical of horror movies. Um, Yeah. But does a beautiful job of, again, creating a very, uh, you know, almost like, uh, like we said with Georgie Scott's performance, adding gravitas to the, to the story. This does the same thing. It adds like an element of production value in that it's a very classic, beautiful score. Um, but also very atmospheric, very beautiful. It's just, uh, it's a great, it's a great piece of, uh, of music scoring that 
I just love the way that it interacts with the picture of this one. And it's a score that, you know, obviously, like they say that two discs, you know, limited edition CDs sold out, but it's not a score that gets brought up a whole lot or gets talked about a lot. So it does kind of fly under the radar for people that aren't kind of obsessed with collecting music <laughs> from movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's certainly, I love how it plays into the, uh, to the whole plot and how it furthers everything. And it does have a different, um, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of like, you know, Shirley Jackson, we talked about the haunting or, um, uh, what's his face? MR James turn to the screw. Those early, like really quintessential horror writers, HR Wakefield, uh, or WF Harvey, who did these movies like the, you know, did these stories that then get translated like the uninvited or, or the innocence or uh, even you said um, uh, burnt offerings, which is something that, you know, it's only a couple years before that sometimes get forgotten uh, with more of the shock, horrific horror movies. Uh, if how this lands in the supernatural kind of arena and then how it, how it's even presented where, you know, once Georgie e. Scott starts getting uh, pushed to figure out what's going on in the movie, uh, you know, the, the, he's, he's coming up with the score. He's hearing this banging every night or every morning at six in the morning. And then he can't figure out with the groundskeeper or the maintenance man, how he thinks it's the furnace. And we later find out, um, that it's the child when the child's drowning. It's, he gets drowned in like a big cast iron tub. It's the kid hitting the sides of the tub when he's getting drowned by the father. Um, and then I guess the implication is what did that happen at six in the morning? And maybe that's why it's happening every morning at six in the morning. Uh, but even when George C. Scott finds the himself in the movie, he finds the, the pantry that leads up to the, the stairs. Um, you know, he finds the door and he's trying to break the lock. And as he's trying to break the old fashioned lock, you start hearing the banging, which is driving him crazy. And then it's in sync him trying to bang. And then once he breaks the lock off, the banging stops. And then he can't get the door open. He starts putting, you know, like, fuck, it's George fucking the C. Scott. He's starts putting his elbow into the door. And I love that what he, he tries to hit it twice like he's going to break the door down. And then when he comes back, the door just opens on its own, you know. And there's a lot of that stuff in the, where he's playing at the piano and the door behind him opens. Or when he says goodbye to the music students, uh, you see the light goes on in the, light, in the kitchen. And then he goes into the kitchen, the water's running. And then he hears water running. He goes up to the third floor and it's like the water's running in that, servant's bathroom and he sees the kid and he sees the, the apparition in the, in the tub and that's like that scares the shit out of him there's all these little things in it that i think really work great you know of trying to get to the point where he finds out uh I, what is he he finds out through the seance he figures out that the kid's buried somewhere so he goes to the uh hall of records and uh the guy in the Hall of Records, the, the, his, the with the beard that shows him the, the books of the mapping surveys of the land, he's a famous person who escapes me. Who I realized um, he's in a Twilight Zone episode. He's in the episode with the the guy who's able to take the piano and he puts the 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 automatic piano plays the melody and then it has people tell their real true thoughts. He's the guy in that. But anyway, my point is he. When he George C. Scott figures out the kid is down a well and he goes over to you know, it's great you see George C. Scott driving through Seattle. They actually had him do the it looks like they had him doing the driving. He goes to the suburban house and he's trying to tell the woman and then the woman, you know, honestly the woman's like, I would have threw you out, but then she then you hear the other side of it where she's like a couple nights ago. My daughter had these horrific dreams of this kid trying to come up out of her floor. And that coincides when they had the seance. Yeah. Well that's a whole and, other and then, that could be a whole other movie. 
is what's happening yeah, to, so, to that lady. <laughs> so, I mean, because you re- imagine, it's, it's quite funny because you see George C. Scott goes over the house and no one's there, right? And he, fi- and he looks at the address, he leaves. Then he comes back the second time with, um, what's her face, his, his wife in real life. Uh, yeah, Claire, the Claire uh, Norman character. Trish yeah. Bandier. And then... Vanderveer, and then it's funny that you don't see. It looks like George C. Scott opens the door himself. You know, he opens the front door. Maybe the actress wasn't there that day, so the the the, the camera kind of pans up, and he's like, opens the door himself. He's like, "Hi, Mrs. Joe Blow," and he walks in with. with a, and then the the scene cuts to the actress who lives there, and she's like, "You know, can you imagine if you're, you're someone does a knock on your door and you live in a house and somebody like you know George C. Scott shows up with some other woman saying, we want to, uh, you know." Uh, dig under your house because there's a well or something there uh it's so preposterous but then she says well my daughter's been and then it's like you're saying it's such a crazy other side of the story um where this eight-year-old girl is having these horrific dreams of this boy you know trying to get trying to grab her or get through the floor come out of the floor so i thought that was a great idea at the time when we watched this movie originally 20 years ago where suddenly they start digging up the floor of this house, and to me, it looks real. They, it looks like they're digging up a real house, and then they, you know, they pull up the floor, and there's no basement, you know, and they get down into the, the, the sediment, and they're going through. They find the well. They get down in the well, and they find these kids' remains, and they call the cops. And it's funny. The next scene is like the cops are just carrying out in like a Ziploc bag, you know. There's like there's like little, very little forensics on. They just come out with like some bones, and they, they just put it in the trunk. And then, like, you know, they're like, how did you find out about all this? And George C. Scott won't say nothing. And then uh, they tell the woman who stays there, like, you, you have a place to stay tonight? And she's like, yeah. So everybody leaves, and George C. Scott breaks into the house to go back to keep looking. Another great, you know, if you're going through the other alternate plot of George C. Scott, the arsonist, who's making all this <laughs> up, he breaks into this woman's house, goes back down, and that's when he, there's that scene where the, the aunt, he finds the medallion where it gets pushed through the dirt. And he's able to find it, and he makes the correlation that he's right. And that's when he then, in the next scene, goes to try to talk to the Melvin Douglas character to say, you know, he runs to the tarmac, and he's like that scene where Melvin Douglas is getting on like a a Learjet, a a private jet, and he's trying to show him like the medallion. And then it's a great reveal when you see Melvin Douglas. He uh, takes out under his shirt. He's on the, you know, he's by himself. He looks, and he has that same medallion on him on his gold chain you know and that's almost like you realize that's also an important thing that he had that his father must have given him to lead you to believe that the father made two of them i guess and that's more goes to i guess later on we said that realization at the end of the movie where melvin douglas is looking at both and he's realizing they're identical and then maybe he has that realization himself that what george e. scott is telling is the truth or or is opening up this can of worms that's actually real yeah, it's one of those movies where you can, uh, like, so many different aspects of the story that are almost peripheral to the changeling could be their own movie. You know, yeah. like, the movie of, like, Daddy Carmichael having to, you know, the mo- the, 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 mo- the movie about the kid in the attic. Or the movie yeah, about Cheeseman the, House, yeah, yeah, or about the about the dad who's got to kill his son and and get a changeling. A movie about the the guy who ends up being the changeling. A movie about the gir- the woman who has Georgie Scott want to rip up. <laughs> her, the Come on, I want to rip up your house. I mean, it's a pr- yeah. it's a it's. I think it's one of the it's one of the big strengths of the uh, of any great script is the depth 
of it. Yeah. You know, like the world. Or even that- the psychics that come over. You know, the, the remember the husband and wife who yeah. the, the I they look very familiar, especially the the, the husband. I've seen yeah. him in a lot of movies. Um, I mean, there's so but many. There's that scene them. again where she's looking. She's looking at the camera, very unsettling. It's yeah. like you see George C. Scott looking right into the lens when he's kind of, you know, date gazing off. Well, the seance is such a great scene. One, because like, yeah. even as you pointed out, it wasn't like seances were a new thing for cinema. But uh, the automatic writing or whatever it's called was, um, that was fairly, you know, new to cinema. And the way it's portrayed is, I love, I just love the way that scene plays out because it's almost violent, you know, yeah. the way she's interacting with the paper and writing what needs to be written down and the guy pulling it out and reading it out loud. Yeah, the husband reading it. No, Robert. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's kind of like it, there's a lot of tension. I remember when I first saw it, you're like on the edge of your seat because it's it's crazy. You don't know what the hell is happening. It's very unsettling, you know. Uh I mean, I even like when they when they go to the you know they have to go to the library to do investigating and they go to find the the microfilm and that's such a huge thing that it's like a card catalog people don't know anything about nowadays. Where when, when we were little, we I would I would do that all the time. I was a, such a big Titanic buff. I would always go to the 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 library and get the librarian to give me the microfiche and I would then sit there you know looking at stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know and then, then you would be able to put a dime in or a quarter and print it quarter, out like a nickel or yeah, print it out you'd have a picture a frame grab or whatever and take that shit home this blurry old newspaper article oh, uh, yeah. but I love when they're looking at stuff and then the, you know they say what the girl is killed by a, a passing coal cart which I thought is such a great device because it's like an ice house you know you don't have that anymore you know um, all that kind of a stuff uh, oh, going back all, to the, I forgot all about that kind of like red herring. Yeah, where it's like it's a, it's a, the, the daughter is is maimed by a, a runaway coal cart, and then she succumbs to her injuries a couple days later, and uh, she that might mean that since that is indicative that so if the if the child the the invalid child dies at least they'd have the daughter for the 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 fortune to fall to, but since the she's killed already. That gets us in the situation that if the kid dies, yeah. you know, um, uh, then the 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 father's going to lose the fortune because it's going to be left to he doesn't want to lose the um, what's it called the uh, Spencer Carmichael fortune yeah. that that the the wife's family had. Sure. So I love all that stuff, the old fashion fashion investigating, and it looks like you know they're going to real libraries and opening real stuff up and all that kind of a thing. Um, it's That's- really it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's something, I mean, you've brought it up a few times. The other <clears throat> great strength of this movie is that it's so chock full of familiar faces for people of our yeah. generation <laughs> and generations before ours. Like uh, the guy who plays Captain DeWitt at the end, like the... Oh, the cop? Yeah, the yeah, cop that, yeah, yeah. that shows up to be like, well, don't go blackmailing. You know, what about the metal? He's uh, He was in a ton of stuff. He's in an episode of Star Trek where he plays a Klingon, that guy. John yes. Colicos, I think is his name. So Yeah, and he's so his face looks so yeah, he's so iconic for, for character actors of television character actors. I forgot he plays a Klingon with like a lower kind of a brow or they put him like in the, the maybe they make you know brown face him up a little bit when they were doing that with the Klingons. Yeah, yeah. Great uh him and Michael Asara. <laughs> uh yeah, it's a great cast all around, even playing the little bits, and it just makes it so true to you. Even like Mr. Tuttle or whatever the groundskeeper's name is, you know, you could have a story about him because he's taking care of a lot of the uh, Seattle's historical uh, societies. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, we have the confrontation. 
where George C. Scott is finally let in and it looks like they're doing something at the mansion and he's like, I'll see him. And, and they let George C. Scott in. And it's like George C. Scott leaves his car running with the lights on and he just gets out and leaves the car in like the little, yeah. you know, like uh, carport. And he goes inside and he, sh- and he shows him all this stuff. And we have that confrontation we talked about where Melvin Douglas breaks down, like, don't you desecrate my father? You know, it's very touching. So um, uh, George C. Scott leaves. And Melvin Douglas is stuck there again, sits down, takes his 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 chain out that he has around his neck he sees he still he has a cross and he has the medallion he looks at the other medallion george c scott goes home and this is the this is the twist where the house starts freaking out it's like the ring twist and george c scott's like what do you want from me i i've done what i can do uh uh house starts freaking out and uh that's while he's there the woman goes to the house because she thinks george c scott's there yeah and then George, she she gets lured up to the attic. She's like, I don't want to go up there, but she hears projections of George Scott's voice, which is dialogue that was yeah. previous in the movie. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is like we hear it, like the house recorded him, Raymond. Like, which is you've heard before. Me? I've heard that in other movies where it's, you know, you hear the voice. You know, you hear that where the the the. And I, I, again, it escapes me what movies these are, where you yeah. hear the 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 entity or the house using that voice to lead someone down the stairs or lead someone into a room, yeah. you know, to, to, to be, to be molested in some sort of way. Reminds me of that movie, the entity. With, sure. uh, what is that? Diane Lane, maybe? Is that who, who, I forget who, the entity, uh, 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 Barbara, Barbara Hershey? Hershey, Barbara Hershey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it reminds me of that, you know, and I, that might even be based off a true story if I, yeah. if I, if I remember correctly, but that, so the end confrontation there. Yeah. Well, I mean that moment where she's, when the character of Claire, the Trish Vandevere, when she shows up, that's like the cliche of like, what are you doing? We'll go in yeah, the house. Get out of the house. Why are, you, Why are you going in the house? Why are you going up the <laughs> stairs? Why are you going up those stairs? Why are you going up the attic? And she gets up there and then the freaking wheelchair goes after her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very freaky. This little, little kid's wheelchair, um, which is then spoofed. Uh, what do they say? That's in uh, Dream Warriors, which we covered on the podcast. Remember Nightmare on Elm Street 3? Yeah. Uh, that's in that. There, there's uh, a couple of the movies they do that in. But so she falls down the damn stairs and, you know, she, hats off to her. A great scene where you could tell she's fucking lost her mind. Falls down the stairs, still is 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 conscious turns and George C. Scott's there and she's like ah, I, I. she's like I gotta get the fuck out you know and George C. Scott's like he gets her out of the house puts her in the car I forget why he goes back in hence why he's, he's setting the house on fire in my theory he goes in and then he runs up the stairs right I don't know why is he going up the stairs and then he gets pushed oh because remember it's blowing yeah and he's trying to get up the stairs and he gets blown off the balcony falls and he's like he's in between consciousness and unconsciousness and then the chandelier is going crazy and you think the chandelier is going to fall on top of him while he's kind of out of it on the floor and then this is what you're saying here what is this technical term called i feel like astro projecting astral projecting yeah that's what i think it's called i don't know i could have made that up but i feel like i've heard that yeah. before where it's like he i feel like you're right <laughs> yeah because there, i mean it could be confusing for i don't know anybody that isn't as attuned to like horror movies or, or whatnot or, or supernatural because it's like he's uh, the uh, Melvin Douglas character is still in his, his at his desk, but he's yeah, in his study know. in his mansion where George C. Scott had left him. He's looking at the, the documents, the reel to reel, and he's looking at that medallion. Yeah. George C. Scott left him. So 
it at, so suddenly you get like the his uh, that's a great shot too for, gives me goosebumps his desk starts fucking shaking and and Melvin Douglas is looking at the picture of his uh, the painting of his daddy his little eight by ten framed on his desk uh, this old like you know hundred year old photo with lamb chops of this or portrait know, I don't even know it might even be a painting I can't it's hard to tell yeah and it's um and it's the medallion and it's shaking on the uh, the medallion shaking out because it's laying over the picture. And then Melvin Douglas is like shaking, looking at the thing. And then suddenly uh, when George C. Scott's laying there uh, in and out of consciousness, a fire starts on the banister of the stairs and this fire erupts. And then the fire starts consuming the house. And then all of a sudden, like you're saying, Melvin Douglas is then in the house with uh, uh, George C. Scott walking up the stairs. So you kind of gives yourself that ending. That's like they, they wrote them themselves in a kind of a corner. How do we get Melvin Douglas over the house? But then, well, just fuck it. We'll put him there. So suddenly, <laughs> yeah. and it works though. I mean, yeah. and suddenly he's there. So I wonder, so uh, our speculation, is it that is what George C. Scott's seeing? Is that really happening in a sense where that's happening to the Melvin Douglas character, even though he's still in his study at his mansion? Is he transported there and suddenly walking up the stairs, going up to the attic to then see the the reality of what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, I guess the implication you of know? what I assumed happened is that it's like his spirit, kind of. It's like that, Goes there. that moment of life flashing before his eyes is like his spirit is, his entity is transported to the house to witness the truth. Yeah, so he's walking up the stairs amid the fire, and George C. Scott seeing this. As soon as he gets up the first staircase, that staircase collapses, and he keeps go- keeps going. And it's scary because George C. Scott seeing this, and then he makes it up to the third floor, goes up to the to the uh, to the uh, uh, attic area, and there's a great little thing they do with the kind of with the shot where it's all on fire, and they do one of those shots like they do in the Frighteners, where suddenly the camera pans, and then it's suddenly. You know, it's a flashback, so it's done in one shot where it's him looking at his father killing the kid in the tub, you know, and then that kind of culminates with him seeing that and then having the heart attack in his study, Melvin Douglas's character, and dying, having, I guess, a heart attack. And then uh, George E. Scott, at that moment, comes to, ducks out of the way when the chandelier falls, gets out of the house, and the house just blows up, you know, and then they just get in the car, they drive over to... Uh, Melvin Douglas's house for some reason, maybe because George C. Scott, because re- George C. Scott's out of it, he's bleeding from the head. Yeah, yeah. Maybe George C. Scott realizes, like, holy shit, I just saw him in the house. That gets him and uh, Vanderveer to drive over to the mansion. Then they see there that that George uh, that Melvin Douglas has died. Yeah, he's had a heart attack. Um, and then a great point what you just said too is, um, backtrack a second is when they have the captain go threaten George C. Scott a little bit. He threatens him and leaves. And then he gets killed seconds later, you know, in, in a car crash. And we don't know what happened, but there's a big hole through the... It, the car's upside down on its roof, perfectly straight. He's dead in the car with this terrible look on his face, the captain. And there's a hole punched through the windshield. But if I remember correctly, the, the windshield punch is punched outward. Yeah. It looks it's not like punched it. inward. Yeah. So it's like the house did it to him because he threatens George C. Scott. Like, you know, you're getting the fuck out of here. We're going to have a search warrant to find the medallion, blah, blah, blah. So... uh 
yeah, it, it just it, it leaves you with all these kind of questions and all this stuff. And then I wonder at the end of the day, the historical society is like, what the fuck? We just <laughs> lost this beautiful, <laughs> you know, because all this stuff could lead to believe that, like, you know, he, he set it all up. He, he he drove this man by threatening him to a heart attack. He set the place on fire. He had this crazy story. The captain's killed. Yeah. Um, and then George C. Scott's leaving. They the uh what's her face his the girl in it they they made her resign from her position at the historical society they re- they revoked his lease at the house that he couldn't stay there anymore so maybe he did just set the place on fire you know and all these questions are left unanswered yeah well that's like another yeah, story is like the police detective the arson the 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 fire marshal who's got to investigate what happens to the house <laughs> Yeah, and then you find, yeah, what happened? Because what is, there's no real, you don't see the gas turning on on its own, you know, or you don't see, you know, it just kind of spontaneously combusts. That's the sequel uh, where yeah. somebody's investigating what happened to the to the house, and then they suspect George C. Scott's character of arson, and then it turns into, like, this big investigation. <laughs> yeah, we should do that now. That's the, um, you know, that's the modern thing. It's Speaking of sequels, there was an unofficial sequel done in 1987 by... Um, Bava, right? Lamberto Bava did this made-for-TV movie called Until Death that uh, when they put it on home video, they they called it an unofficial sequel to The Changeling, but it actually had no connection between that film and this film. Huh, I so haven't seen that. I guess I'll they tried to... to re- uh, yeah, to it's called Until Death. Yeah, I have to search that one out because that's what Bava... That's a Bava film I don't think I've seen before. But yeah. we've talked about so, uh, we've talked about the Italians doing unofficial sequels to things in the past. Yeah, we have, we have. Uh, yeah, so we talk about this movie ends up, you know, like we said, it it influences. I would say The Ring. I would say Sixth Sense. I would say The Others. Uh, uh, Nev Campbell calls this movie one of the scariest movies, uh, in her opinion. If we're talking about Scream, uh, they spoof it in Fatal Instinct and Scary Movie Two. Uh, I feel like there's another movie that that uh, or we said uh, Dream Warriors. They have that the same sequence with the um, I think with the wheelchair. So it just seems like this was a movie rounding back to the beginning of this. We were talking about that this does uh, unofficially influence a crap ton of movies uh, like Shirley Jackson's The Haunting does, The Haunting of Hill House, and you know these other kind of the uninvited these these other short stories that end up being, you know, very different from like horror movie, horror haunted houses like Amityville or The Shining, I would say almost, you know. I mean, that's kind of why I appreciated things like Insidious and Conjuring 2 when those came out because they, these are movies that set up, like Insidious starts where it's setting up like, oh, this is just going to be another one of uh, these kinds of movies. Yeah, but then there's a moment in the movie where it's like, oh wait, no, that's not what's hap- what's happening. This is what's happening. So in a way, like someone like James Wan is playing with the convention that a movie like The Changeling has helped, you know, solidify as uh, as like the foundation of what these movies are like. It's someone who loves horror movies, has seen these movies, and then saying like lulling you into like a false sense of security as a horror movie viewer. To be like it's it's like this, but no, it's actually this really weird thing that's happening that is not anything <laughs> yeah. like the changeling. And you know that's something I love the Insidious movies. Uh, I like the Conjuring movies and the Offspring's, the Annabelle stuff like that. I remember that I was completely along for the ride when that happened in the Ring. When you have that that 
you know, at the end, like, it's there! You know, like, I, I completely fell for that then. Uh, yeah. That scared the poops out of me. So I love when you have, like, that, like this. And I, I still feel like this is still, like, a, a movie people kind of sleep on and don't really know. It's on a lot of lists and all that kind of a thing, but I don't know how well regarded, even in the George C. Scott catalog. You know, of, of 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 or in horror proper horror movies, if a lot of audiences nowadays kind of appreciate this and realize that yeah. it kind of has a lot of elements that have been picked apart and used very successfully in other movies that have become classics. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, I don't think it got um, <clears throat> a lot of distribution in America when it first came out. I mean, it played in the theaters here in the states, but I don't think it got like a really huge. Um, distribution i don't think it played that on that many screens and so like i think it kind of fell through the cracks then when it came out and it yeah. probably found an audience in the 80s from you know on vhs uh yeah. from renting stuff but I, I agree i mean it's a shame i i think you know i know like i personally know people that love horror movies that know it and love it but it's i think we've talked about it in, and before on the show which is like social media it's like you it's such a weird, close knit. At the end of the day, pretty small niche of people that you communicate with that you could maybe falsely get the sense that things are more popular than you you might think because just because everybody I know that talk that I talk to on Twitter who loves horror movies know it, that's still just like a couple hundred people maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's a niche. Yeah, 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 a niche. And yeah. Uh, and also, like you said too, it's, if it came out in eighty. You gotta remember the shining i bet you was huge in 1982 yeah. the hearse that's another movie that came out that i think was big at the same time that also has what's her face in it um van um uh, uh what's her name his wife and oh, uh, george van, scott's uh, wife uh van devere yeah she's in the ghost story comes out 81 yeah. that was a huge movie when that came out because of the cast and that of elderly gentlemen that were hollywood icons yeah. and that's another great movie that i think people sleep on it's ghost story sure um so, which also I think Dick Smith might have. The Poltergeist came out, so I think around that time you had a lot of good movies coming out, and maybe this just slipped through the cracks because there was other very big celebrity-driven movies that were really well-renowned. Yeah, you know. Anyway, um, I'm glad. I we mean, that's did how it. we found it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why one of the reasons why I suggested we do it right uh, now. One, we haven't really done a horror movie since we did our October horror movie extravaganza, where we did all anthology horror movies. But uh, to you which know, I see it, a lot of people doing now. A lot of people are doing the covering the movies we did already. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, we yeah we did that six months ago. Well, that was of, two weeks ago. A lot of talk about you know. Creep Show lately. It's like, well, we already talked about Creep yeah. Show or Tales from the Crypt. We're like, well, you know, yeah. we 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 yeah we talked about. We even went to, Jesus. We did yeah. the backstory and, and all Scream those books. Scream Factory as of when we're recording this, which is in April of 2020, is just about to come out with a Tales from the Dark Side Blu-ray. Uh, which we did tells from Dark Side the movie. I mean, that's, they're yeah, coming out did. with the movie, not the television show. But uh, yeah, we, and we 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 went through that and and the, you know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Which but you know, stuff you know like done. I said, it was I discovered that it was an anniversary for this movie, and it's a movie that you and I have watched and loved together. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, why don't we do this? It's a little different, you know, than uh, what we usually do. It's more of a classic uh, in the way it's in the in the storytelling style. Than, sure. Uh, some of the horror movie, other horror movies we have uh, covered in recent years, and I feel like people who are um, of our age and older, and maybe a couple years younger, who lived through the era of the video store, will certainly know it because 
I hadn't seen it, like I said, until we watched it together. But growing up, certainly, I remember seeing that box with the um, on the cover is the wheelchair and cobwebs, yeah. and with the changing how it's written. So I, for years, knew the box, the VHS sure. cover. Yeah, you know, I and it just it's some things you just get scared and you don't want to mess with, and that was one. It's like, oh my gosh, it's yeah. like we cruising, even... you know, to the bottom, <laughs> or, Bar- or Barry Lyndon. You see these movies, yeah. Prince we even of the get City. a movie like. Uh... You know, something that came after that, which is a big horror movie for a lot of horror movie fans, Session 9 with, uh, uh, what's his name? David, uh, the redhead guy from... Caruso. Caruso, yeah. But the, the cover of that from movie... From First Blood. The, <laughs> the uh, DVD cover, I don't know if that ever made it to VHS, if that came after, but the cover of that movie is kind of a little homage to the Changeling cover of like a wheelchair on the on the front. Yeah. So... Yeah. Another influence. And RIP, uh, Brian Dennehy, because he just passed away. And, we're t- and, and uh, that's, a, that's something we, we've, we've thought about doing is the, the FX movies on here. Someone said FX. that to us uh, on the movies. And I said, hey, you know, we actually brought that up once or twice doing the FX. Maybe we'll do a double feature, do both of them in yeah. one foul swoop. We've talked about uh, doing First we, Blood as well. Yeah, First Blood. We talked about doing Cocoon, <laughs> uh, you know, and... Uh, yeah, God bless uh, one of Connecticut's own Derby, uh, good old Brian Dennehy, who I I said online, I, I met years ago, and he was very, very nice, and we talked about Connecticut for about 10 minutes so as he signed in all my stuff. I was like, oh, shit, you're from Connecticut. He's like, I am, kid. I was like, that's great. Can you sign this, please? Thank you. Wow. So, but great choice. I think this is really good. I know we've cut our uh, our output down. Uh, to once a month because of everything going on. And then now that we have everything going on in 2020 with, um, you know, the, the pandemic going on. So uh, that delayed us somewhat uh, for the logistics of trying to record something. And it hasn't impeded us. We found ways around it. But, you know, I hope that's something, one, that we're coming out with a new episode. That'll help people who are listeners of this show, uh, you know, give them some brevity, something to light, you know, that, to take their mind off of stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an, <laughs> an, an in-depth discussion about a movie about grief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. About death and grief. Uh, but also, you know, it's, it's just adding something. You know, I, I wonder, it's, it's like you say a lot of times, I wonder how this movie will do with our audience if people will know it or, you know, because we certainly like it, but... If there's an audience out there for it, Georgie Scott fans or for horror <laughs> fans, you know, uh, or, you know, for Haunted House, Supernatural, Gothic horror film fans, if this is going to be something like a Dark Shadows or something that people will really like, sure. you know, so um, I don't know. But it was great coming back and, you know, getting back behind the wheel and doing another episode, you know, uh, yeah. the the April edition of 2020 of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh how you doing? You you you're you're holding up. Did you uh, you said you handed your book in, eh? Your your first uh, well, first edit. yeah, I handed the manuscript in. So uh, supposedly it's getting edited right now, but uh, I'm sure I'll get I'll get notes at some point, and then <laughs> and then yeah. I have to start working on it again. Um, there's just a lot, and I'm also working from home. So uh, thankfully, I'm grateful that i that i'm able to work but uh unfortunately my time hasn't been freed up and it's almost like i feel like i work more because now that i'm not commuting yeah it's like it's like i end up just getting up and getting <laughs> <laughs> yeah just like get up and go to work and I sit down and i start working and then i'm, when you're I'm in your boxers and you're like yeah i don't have i don't have like that half hour to 40 minutes of getting home till i kind of decompress i'm just here already sitting in my bedroom day sure. in and day out 
but uh, and then um, do you want to tease people yeah, too? I mean, it's so weird so not you, doing you, you the show as often. It's it's weird not doing the show as often as we were because I feel like we used to, you know, I used to see you all the time and now I feel like I don't see you ever. <laughs> see you see each other once a month. Um uh and then you want to tease people that's that you, you just put the you're talking about the sequel to Score to Death the the book conversations with some of horror movies conversations with some of horror movies greatest composers. Close. I think so. I I lost track of what you were saying. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> Yeah, that's the sequel of that. Oh. So that's, I mean, it, if all goes according to plan, um, it should be out in the fall. Hopefully it doesn't get delayed for any reason. I mean, unfortunately, it's going to mean, I don't know how much I'm going to be able to get out to promote it in person places by September, October. Just things are uncertain right now. But uh, yeah, got a second book of interviews coming out, and I might have uh, been kind of easing my way back into maybe doing some more scored to death the podcast um i'm hoping to have another interview uh for the podcast done and up within the next nice. uh, couple of weeks or month and whatnot we'll see i don't know how much i'm burnt out to be honest with you <laughs> i know i know well that's exciting for people to see that you know that deck that, that you know there could be another edition from cuts from the crypt uh not cuts from the crypt i'm sorry scored to death yeah. Yeah, um, and who knows? I mean, I'm also a lot of people who enjoyed the Cuts from the Crypt podcast have asked if I would do a show of that format, which is like I play DJ playing movie cues. Uh, if I could do that somewhere else, and I don't know how or where, but maybe I'll do that at some point because I did have fun. I'm doing into it. it. If I if I could find a place that would take a show and be able to legally do a show where I get to play music. Um, just try to figure out what the next step is. Um, now that the sure. book is kind of winding down, it's not done. I still have other things to do, but you know we've slowed down a little bit. Getting catching my breath and figuring out what's next. And yourself? That's good. Um, your well, I'm just about done. <laughs> ah, Jesus, it's murder. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's taken me 12 months to write, and uh, I'm finally handing it in. Who knows if it's going to be any good? It's a big epic. So that'll be the second book coming out. Um, no relation to the first book. Uh, and that should be out, I think, maybe towards Christmas time. I mean, the idea was I'd have to have it finished by June to get a hardcover release or by September for a softcover, and I don't see myself having it all done and handed in and ready to go to print by June. So... Um, I guess it'd be a paperback release at this point. But like you said, with all the uncertainty going on right now in the world with stuff, who knows what's going on with the market or if hopefully I'm not talking out of my ass and next month I find out that they don't want to publish anything. So um, keep my fingers crossed. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, this will be a fun one. Uh, uh, like you read the screenplay a couple of years ago that I translated it from. So uh, that'll be fun. And um, I've got my other book that's already out, that's been out for a year and a half. Uh, I was going to say scored to death, um, Blood in the Streets. Uh, that's a, um, you know, a great, if you're looking to read something or listen to something, it's available in audiobook. a little 70s uh, cop crime uh, thriller uh, mystery. If you like 70s cop movies or t cop shows or, you know, that kind of, detective whodunit shows that might be right up your alley uh, blood in the streets available amazon wherever you can get books either sent to you you can get a digital it's on ebook or you can listen to it it's an audiobook so and then hopefully like i said by the end of the year i'll have the second one out which is unrelated this this one's completely different but still sure. be fun hopefully yeah. so also, and uh we, and we yeah i just want to thank you know there's been a lot of people that with everything going on 
in the world. There's been quite a few people who are listeners to the show who have messaged us asking us how we were doing and because they know we're in New York and uh, yeah, just I wanted to say thank you to those people for caring enough to, <laughs> to worry about us. But we're we're doing so yeah. far so good. We're doing all right. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice for people to say you know reach out and ask how it's going and how we're doing and then ask about the show and then you know are you guys gonna be doing stuff or are you all right and then. When we said we had to delay it a week, people were very gracious with, don't worry, you know, we will care about your safety. So that's nice. You know, we know people want to hear new episodes, but that's good to know that people, you know, are out there, you know, they care enough to want to listen to the show to ask about it. And then also they care enough to ask about our well-being. So that's nice. So, uh, and we hope everyone who's listening hangs in there and everyone's okay. And if you're going through a tough patch and, you know, um, this is affecting you personally or, or, you know, either financially or, you know, if, the, if you, you know somebody who's ill, we just, our heart goes out to you, you know, and we just hope you can hang in there and please stay safe and take it easy and listen to what everyone's saying about, you know, laying low until all this dies down, you know, pick up a new hobby like I've been doing, you know, um, paperclip models, you know. <laughs> lot of taking the lolly. What do you call that? The uh, taking the uh, the paper popsicle the, stick, the tongue, the tongue depressor, popsicle sticks. Yeah, making stuff. So, um, but anyway, you could check us out on Facebook. You could check us out on Instagram. You could check us out on uh, Twitter. Um, we have our own regular site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I have my own stuff, Dion Baia, Blood in the Streets. Blake has his own stuff, Score, uh, to, score death. to Death. Um, you could talk to us about the podcast uh you know leave us a message uh, uh like us retweet us uh give us suggestions on stuff you'd like to hear uh just join the conversation we're talking about finally getting ourselves on youtube so that might be fun if you guys want to listen to the podcast uh you know via youtube that might be interesting um, if it happens so uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, take the back catalog and slowly put it on. It's just it's a matter of us being lazy and actually putting it out there, having to do it, you know. So, but um, we'll be back sooner than you know with another new episode next month. And uh, you know, we've been talking about some other stuff in the works too that might be fun. So we're always plotting and scheming. So um, you know, take it easy, everybody, and uh, we'll see you what in, in uh, very soon next couple of weeks with an all new episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Later. We'll be